This is a HeadGum Podcast. Support for the Black Girl Nerds Podcast comes from appswithoutcode.com, where my girl Tara Reed is helping non-technical folks build apps without writing a single line of code. I know, super crazy, right? Totally. If you've ever said there should be an app for that, but you're not a developer, Tara's put together a free toolkit jam-packed with everything you need to get started. Just text TOOLKIT1 to 44222 and she'll send it your way. Seriously, you are going to be blown away with what you can do without writing code. Apps, websites, widgets, whatever. Tara's made hundreds of thousands launching her own startups, building stuff by herself. Text Toolkit1 to 44222 for your free toolkit. That's right. Text Toolkit1 to 44222 before someone else steals your idea. What's up, y'all? It's producer Will Packer, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Keep it locked right here. Hi, I'm Joy Bryant, and I'm a Black Girl Nerd, and you are listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, my name is Lovey, and you are listening to Black Girl Nerd. What's up, y'all? This is Amanda Seals, comedian, writer, and creator of Get Your Life, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Khaleesi! Uh, my name is Tanahasi Coates. I write for The Atlantic and I am the writer on uh, Black Panther right now. And you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, this is Jada Pinkett Smith and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to episode 90 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This is the Luke Cage Show. One of the most anticipated Marvel comic book TV shows to come out is going to premiere this Friday, September 30th on Netflix. And we are all so excited and have been waiting with bated breath since it was announced that Luke Cage was having his own show. And in this episode, we feature interviews from Cheo Hidari Coker, Mike Coulter, Simone Missick, Frank Wally, Theo Rossi, Mahershala Ali, Alfre Woodard, and Marvel's head of television, Jeff Loeb. 
So this episode is going to be pretty profound because it's going to prepare you for everything that you need as you get ready to binge watch Luke Cage on September 30th. Everything that you wanted to know about the preparation for this show and what to expect, you're going to hear in this interview. There are no spoilers given, so don't worry about that. If you've not seen Luke Cage, don't worry. We're not spoiling anything for you, but we are going to give you a little bit of background and a little bit of previews of what you're going to see coming up on September 30th. Also, we will have a live tweet scheduled, and this is being done both domestically and internationally on Friday, September 30th, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. We have International Times posted on our digital flyer on Twitter, so just follow the Twitter feed, Sweet Christmas, and follow Black Girl Nerds. Also follow at Geeks of Color. We are both partnering up to do this amazing live tweet, and we're going to binge watch the first four episodes on Friday, the next four episodes on Saturday, and then the final four episodes on Sunday. So we're going to do all of that throughout the weekend. Cheo is one who supports live tweeting. Please tweet with us. Enjoy it. We're using the hashtag Sweet Christmas. There's other tags that are being used. Misty So Lit, Cage Timber. Feel free to use as many tags as possible. I mean, honestly, the goal, really, the goal here is to make sure that every tag associated with Luke Cage is trending throughout this weekend. So we want to trend every Luke Cage associated hashtag. I personally think it can be done, but I'm going to leave that to you guys to make sure that that happens. So join us again on Friday, September 30th to live tweet Luke Cage. So sit back and relax. This is going to be a great show. I promise you. I know I say that often, but this one by far is my favorite one to date just because I'm so excited for this show. And I've seen the first seven episodes, so um, you guys are in for a treat. Trust me on this. Trust me. You guys know I love my television. I have very high standards. Luke Cage exceeds those expectations. So check out Luke Cage and listen in on the show. And please share, comment, let everybody know. Black Girl Nerds has a whole show devoted to Luke Cage and has everybody from the show involved in it. Tell all your friends, your family members, let folks know that this show is happening. I think you're going to like it. So our first segment is with TV showrunner, Netflix Luke Cage creator, Mr. Cheo Hidari Coker. Enjoy. Cheo Hadari Coker is a producer and writer and also former music journalist. He's known for films such as Notorious, TV shows such as Southland, and currently he is the TV showrunner for Marvel's Luke Cage, coming up on September 30th. Thank you for tuning in to this special edition of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Guys, it's coming. It's soon. Netflix's new show, Luke Cage, is scheduled to drop on September 30th. And we are more than excited to have the man behind the story, the man that is running the whole show. We have Cheo Hidari Coker. He is a producer, a writer known for Notorious, 
Southland, and yes, he is currently running the show over at Marvel and Netflix's Luke Cage. Cheo, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Although, you know, it's always weird when you kind of hear all these titles. It's like, I, I feel like, like, I, like I, I need to start rapping or something. You know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just like, you know, I, that, that was kind of like my, my joke about um, Khaleesi on um, Game of Thrones. It's like she, she she has more more titles than an MC, you know, the Unburnt. Although I think the Unburnt, is, is, that would be like the flyest rap name ever. I mean, that, 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 that's kind of hot. That's my favorite title of hers, the Unburnt. Indeed. Yeah, Mother of Dragons, but the Unburned is that, that's, that's dope. That, that's like what? <laughs> that, that's, like, <laughs> you know, that's pretty much like, you know, drop the mic kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so happy to have our co-hosts here. We have Joy, KB, and Tora. Thank you, ladies, for coming on. Hi. Hi. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> so, Cheo, um, I have been blessed with the opportunity to see the first seven episodes of the show. This show is magnificent. It's brilliant. It is, in fact, a game changer for so many fans. And we actually had the chance to meet in person at San Diego Comic Con, which was awesome. It was great. I mean, it was great because I mean that that's the thing about what you guys do is that um, the internet just offers the opportunity for like-minded individuals to kind of connect, but not only connect but mobilize. I mean, it's really if you go all the way back, it's what has changed this kind of storytelling because um back in the day when I used to write for Premier Magazine, it was really the early days of Ain't It Cool News. And yeah. you know and you know, Harry knows that Ain't It Cool News, you know, now I'm really dating myself, but it, you know, this was all the way what, two thousand two thousand one? I I wrote a um it was a cover story for Premiere. I was it was the the first X Men movie and I was in um Toronto on set. And they were freaking out because the first images of, you know, the team in their costumes had leaked. And they were freaking out because they leaked on any cool news. And on one hand, they were, like, freaking out about the fact that people didn't necessarily like the costume, but at the same time, you know, were afraid about the, you know, a different approach that they were going to take with the movie. Because that movie kind of changed things. Mm-hmm. Because, but you know, before then, it was really about, like, you know, nipples on the bat suit and... uh you know, those really bad Joel Schumacher Batman movies. And it had gotten to a point where the studios had underestimated the sophistication of a comic book audience. And so the Internet was the first, you know, basic check system in a way to mobilize fans and say, we want more serious storytelling. And the X-Men movies with, with Brian Singer were really the first to kind of break through and at the same time take a more serious approach. And then well, the real game changer was because of the fact that they had to deal with the cool news and leaks and, you know, those kinds of questions, they began to realize that, you know, geeks are a mobilized force. And then, you know, it kind of the combination of that and, and Lord of the Rings and everything else and the fact that you have this medium that people could actually directly contact without studio interference, tell people what they like, what they don't like. Um, in a way, it, it really built everything because not only does it build this, not only does it bring people together, now you have Netflix where you're everywhere. And so as a result, we market differently. So i got to go to Paris in two days because of the fact that we're going to open this show worldwide, not only to prevent like the kinds of leaks that they were freaking out about back in the in 2000s, but also because of the fact that everyone around the world is going to have a chance to watch the show. So it's not like, you know, with this kind of show, particularly with a, with, with a deep African-American 
theme in it. Like you got to, okay, make it a hit in the, in the U.S. and then barnstorm. No, you, if you're a hit here and you're a hit everywhere, it helps black entertainment spread around the world because they've always told us that we don't, you know, that black doesn't travel. And I think honestly that we, you know, we travel all too well, but I've never had the chance to prove it. So it's scary because it puts a lot on the show, but I really think that this show could be an ambassador in ways that people haven't anticipated yet. And that's so amazing that it's going to, um, you know, premiere internationally and people will get to see how unapologetically black this show is. Uh, yeah, because I, I, I don't plan on apologizing. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and that was what was so compelling about this story to me is these are, I mean, it really felt like Harlem. It really felt like, you know, we were walking the streets of, of Harlem and, you know, meeting with the, the residents that live there. Can you tell us a little bit about how much creative control that you had over this narrative as well as the script and putting this show together and kind of just walk us through the process a little bit? Uh, I would say the thing was was that I always knew how much culture was going to resonate. And so the balance for me was the balance between making sure that I could accomplish everything that I wanted to do culturally, but then at the same time, making sure that we met the standards of geeks around the world, because particularly Marvel geeks, are not only are Marvel geeks rabid, they're very specific and very articulate about, about what it is they want and how they want it. And so it was kind of making sure that we had that balance. I think one of the reasons that I broke through was really that pitch that, that you know, that I talked about where I said when I was with um, Jeff Logue and um, Kring's Rake, where I said, I saw the show as the combination of, you know, Belly Meets City of God as written by the staff of The Wire. I mean, really, strangely enough, the thing that turned them on the most, or at least Jeff, was when I said Belly. Because at the time, I didn't realize that he and Hype Williams were really tight. And so um, Belly, in a way, set a tone because it let them understand that I really wanted to do something that was visually bombastic and could be identified with hip-hop, but then at the same time, have the potential, you know, for sophistication because Malik Saeed, the way that he did the cinematography for hype, I mean, it just, that movie itself is beautiful. You know, City of God really created a world and The Wire managed to balance entertainment with, you know, deep societal commentary as well as, um, just getting real to a point where it actually puts you up on culture rather than it being, you know, like a theme park. So that was the thing about all three is that I wanted it to resonate in both ways, not only as a comic book story, but also as making Harlem a real place. And it was that approach. I, I think the person that it resonated the most with was Alfred Woodard, because Alfred has, you know, lives on and off in Harlem. Like, you know, she she lives on, on the West Coast, but she's owned property in Harlem for, for years. And so when I was talking to her um, about how I wanted to model Black Mariah on Madam Queen, and at the same time, you know, have this kind of feel of, you know, other members of, of the Harlem underworld, like, you know, the fact that Cottonmouth was going to kind of be, a, a, have a little bit of Nicky Barnes or a little bit of um, Frank Lucas, you know, matched with kind of, the, you know, the swaggered attitude of Bumpy. Mentioning legendary figures like that, but then at the same time saying that we were going to, you know, really talk about the culture of Harlem and talk about the fact that it's a place where, you know, Duke Ellington and Minton's Playhouse and James Brown and, and how so much culture is, is kind of passed through there. In addition to the politics, 
I think she understood that this was a different kind of show. And so getting someone like Alfrey, Alfrey in a way was, was our, um, our Marlon Brando, you know, the same way how Marlon Brando entered the cast of the Godfather. And as a result allowed a young Pacino, a young James Caan and a young Robert Duvall, you know, to really kind of push to the next level. I, I think that was the thing was that everybody kind of pivoted off of her, but then at the same time, they're bringing such a game like level acting. I mean, you know, once you're talking about Mahershala and Mike and Theo and Frank and Simone and Rosario, you know, Ron Cephas Jones as well, who's, who is a, is a supporting character, but brings just such flavor. And the reason you see him everywhere, cause he's like Sam Jackson, everywhere, every, every show you put him on, he adds a different flavor to himself. And it's just kind of this elemental thing. When you're talking about acting on that level, the writing has to match it. And if the writing matches it, and then at the same time, you're telling comic book stories in addition to real stories. I mean, everything around it, it's just, oh, my God, it was just um, incredible. And I think that we're going to accomplish things that people never would have anticipated from this kind of show. Oh, my goodness. That's so exciting. And it's it's very interesting that you bring up Hype Williams' belly because that movie had so many musical influences to it. And the music on this show is is fire. I mean, it's it's some of the best uh, music that I've heard, and I love that you elect to title each episode after a song. And you've got a, a background in music journalism as a writer for Vibe magazine. How important was the music for the telling of this story, and why did you see a need for it? There's music in everything I do, even though I can't sing. <laughs> but, I mean, the thing is, is that music has always propelled me. It's always been the kind of glue that um has connected me to my people because I grew, you know, I was born in New Haven, but I grew up in Storrs, Connecticut. And Storrs is where UConn is. And, you know, now, of course, it's the home of many a basketball champion, male and female. But before that happened, um, I mean, it was basically a cow town. I mean, I, I mean, that's not even the diss it. It's just like I was always the only black kid in my class. I mean, really from first through eighth grade, I was only black male. And so, in one way, it kind of prepared me for the isolation of the writer's room, you know, and from the standpoint of you get used to being the only one. But the thing about it was is that any kind of connection that I had to hip hop for me was really personal because it like I took it more seriously than anybody else. Because like when my cousins would, you know, who lived in Montclair, New Jersey, you know, if, if they um, taped Red Alert off of Kiss FM, and they came for Christmas and just kind of discarded the tape, like, oh, you can have this. I was like, I hold on, oh my God, thank you so much. And I would memorize tapes and I would just listen to artists and I was pre-internet, you know, you had to kind of track all these groups down, like, like really like the back of a public enemy record, um, in the liner notes had all the different groups that were coming up. So that was kind of the first time you heard of Leaders of the New School or Tribe Called Quest or Native Tongues or De La Soul or X-Clan, because what they would do is, you know, they would have the extra strength posse and they would all like list all these different groups and you hadn't heard them yet. And unlike now with the Internet, we can Google a name and hear a song. You had to track those things down. I mean, it was basically almost like some like almost comic book collector slash Dungeons and Dragons culture where, you know, instead of trying to find the rare set of dice or, you know, at the same time, create a campaign or, or you know, find um, a rare comic. You were trying to like find these records or hear these records. It, I just took it very seriously. So then as a result, everything I do is basically has a, either a hip-hop base or, um, you know, is connected because it was the only connection I really felt to, you know, black kids my age. 
you know, it wasn't disposable culture to me. I mean, I, I studied it like anything else. And so when it comes to the show, for me, it had to be the right hip hop. It wasn't just about having rap. It was about hip hop that said something, something that resonated. So that's for me is, was why it was 90s hip hop. In addition to that, you know, the whole gangstar thing, that kind of comes back to my initial pitch. When I went into the room um, with Jeff and um, Kareem, you know, the second pitch was, you know, the one that, that ultimately got me the job. I was probably more nervous for that pitch than almost anything that I'd ever done up to that point. So I was trying to calm myself down by saying, look, just try to, you know, relax and instead of going in with one episode in your mind, think of how you would arc an entire story. And one thing that's, that's an interesting influence that people wouldn't guess is, for me, it's Shonda Rhimes, because um, I'm a huge Grey's Anatomy fan. It's, you know, basically anything Shonda Rhimes does, whether it's Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, or How to Get Away with Murder. And with Scandal, she always named every episode, like, after, like, a popular song. There's something that you eventually begin to notice. So I said, okay, let me think of like 13 different titles. So at the very least, I can think thematically of just, just almost like a game. Like how I could just kind of figure out how to walk Luke Cage through a scenario. And so I just basically started going through my iTunes and eventually going, just going through stuff. You know, I kind of used an, a, a trick that we used to use back in the day with hip hop journalism is that you, you take a, a, a song title and make that a cover line. And so, you know, not basing it on actual content of the song or anything, just kind of just what a title kind of invokes. So you hit Moment of Truth, and then you hit BYS and, you know, Take a Personal and these other titles. I'm like, wait a minute, Gangstars, you know, because I've always loved the group, they're all, there's this theme work in play. So here's the opportunity kind of to, like, walk Luke through a scenario. So Moment of Truth is when Luke discovers that, okay, this is the moment where I'm going to step out as a hero, whether I want to or not. Who's going to take the weight is that he's reminded that there are rules, unwritten rules, and this is the consequence of having stepped up. You know, it's really when Luke, to a certain extent, by invading Christmas Addicts, is, um, you know, finally taking on the mantle of responsibility and also basically answering that question, he's going to take the weight. And so it was that kind of thing that, for me, was first, was just in kind of my mind thinking of how do you string out 13, and as we got deeper into it, um, that initial kind of playful thing just solidified the more that we got closer to an actual vision of what the show was. So I think it's funny because I think some people kind of think that those song titles, you know, came at the end, but in, in this weird way, they kind of came at the beginning. Awesome. Oh, wow. It's amazing. As you said, Marvel fans are a very particular breed. And with this show, there's an opportunity to bring in new fans. So what aspects of Luke Cage's personality did you feel most necessary to highlight when presenting his character to the audience? Well, he had to be smooth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, he had to kind of be assertive, but not in a flashy way. He had to be confident. I basically wanted him to be a character that, you know, women would fall in love with, but then at the same time have the kind of brawn that, you know, male viewers and fanboys would also be like, oh, I want to be like that. But then at the same time, have the kind of heroic savvy, but savoir faire that fangirls will get into as well. So to me, I mean, he really had to be Big Daddy Kane, you know, because Kane was a, Kane and Rakim, but particularly Kane, actually Kane was kind of, you know, the perfect test subject. I mean, Kane or LL, because the one thing about a Kane record is that like back in the day, Women loved Kane. He was kind of a smooth operator. But then at the same time as an MC, I mean, he was one of the fiercest battlers ever. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I mean, I, 
Yeah, I mean, he kind of had to, you know, if I'm going to steal from Kane, my favorite Kane metaphor is from the song Raw, where he said, so full of action, my name should be a verb. I mean, that that's like Luke Cage to me. It's just something elemental about the character. I mean, whether you want to call it the shaft of the Marvel Universe, I mean, I think it's cool because that's what appealed to people about Shaft was the fact that, you know, he was hotter than Bond, cooler than Bullet, like, like the movie title said. I mean, he really was somebody that was black, but at the same time, there was something about his sophistication, just the fact that he's hanging out in Harlem, but he lives in the village. I mean, he's kind of bridging two worlds. And I think that's the thing about Luke Cage. I, that's really ironic, the fact that, of course, Jessica Jones, you know, there's kind of a village vibe, you know, even though they're in Hell's Kitchen, and then now he's, he's uptown. So I guess the, the shaft roots of Luke Cage are deeper than, than even I'm thinking of right now. Right. So how do you feel that fans will respond to a Luke Cage story during this political climate? And are you excited about this? Um, We didn't mean for it to be political. We just told the truth. And unfortunately, you know, things have gotten worse, but things have always been tough for us as black people. And, when you tell the truth about it, really the sad part is just how these issues have not gone away. So I, I kind of wish that the things that we deal with in the show were dated because I wasn't really like specific by design. I mean, you, you can't anticipate that, you know, after what's happened, like these rational shootings and this everything that, that's going on. But at the same time, you know, we knew that with some of the things we were doing, um, the show could be socially relevant. Um, so what I say is that it was never the intention, but at the same time, we never shirk away from the meaning of having a black hero in this current world. To me, Luke Cage was always going to be a black hero, meaning that I wanted him to be somebody that was black by choice and by design, not by coincidence. You know what I mean? I didn't want him to kind of be, oh, he's black, by, you know, by the way. You know, that, that wasn't my, my thing with Luke Cage. I mean, he's a brother, straight up. But at the same time, that doesn't really color how he attacks crime or position in the world. It's basically that he comes from a conscious place, but it doesn't prevent him from helping anyone in need. It's the reason why, even though this is a very strongly, unapologetically black take on the character, it doesn't contradict the Luke Cage that was introduced to Jessica Jones. If anything, what it does is it expands who it is he is and his complexity because I think sometimes people don't understand that you can be universal and at the same time be deeply black. And that was the thing that I really wanted to do with this. Is I, I didn't want to contradict the Luke Cage of Jessica Jones. I wanted to kind of expand on the world of Luke Cage because, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's like... um you, in a way, you have two selves. Not that yourself is different in the white world than you are in the black world. It's just, it's just more expansive. And so, like, here's the thing. Jessica Jones, you never followed him home. You never followed him when he got a haircut. You know, you never followed him when he was hanging out with anybody. So that, that's what this show is. So I think the thing is, once he's in The Defenders, there's probably going to be less culture in this respect. But then I, that's what will make this Luke Cage series always resonate. Because you know that anytime you watch this show, there is going to be some kind of cultural aspect. And... It's a prideful cultural aspect that at the same time is what I, what I call inclusively black as opposed to exclusively black. Meaning that I really wanted people to go off the deep ends of the culture without explanation, but then at the same time do it in such a way where they're sucked into the world rather than, you know, they feel like they're being catered to. 
it's kind of a cinematic approach. I mean, it's kind of the way you feel like if you watch Woody Allen's Manhattan and, you know, that's kind of a deep end of like, you know, upper west side, you know, New York kind of literary culture. And then at the same time, if you also are, um, you know, watching a movie like Goodfellas or, um, or Mean Streets, you know, you're deep in these neighborhoods. Nobody's talking as if anyone else is listening. So it's kind of unfiltered. You know, the thing is, is like, that's the, that's really the thing I love about a show like Atlanta. Atlanta to me is, um, man, it's just incredible how deep that show goes. I, I can't believe that Donald Glover got away with that shit, honestly. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, like literally, I mean, yeah. it's like, it's like, like, I, I guess the, uh, the censors fell asleep at the wheel or something. <laughs> I'm like, man, I mean, this is like, you know, you didn't think that it was possible to do that kind of show, but that's the thing. Like, I mean, you know, rather than Atlanta and uh, Queen Sugar and um, Power and um, Greenleaf, yeah. um, you know, rather than it being competition, I honestly see it as a celebration because for the first time we have expansive stories that just show like just how deep and how rich and how unique the black experience is and how when you watch shows, you're introduced to all of these different aspects of black people. And so I think from an outsider perspective, they're like, man, I, you know, we, we hear diversity, but we never knew it was this deep. But from internally with us as our people, we watch these shows and we're seeing just like our cousins and our aunts and just all these different sides of our family and the entire socioeconomic spectrum of the black experience. I mean, it's never been expressed in this way. You know, we hit a lot of deep things on the show that people aren't going to expect. But the thing about the, all those other shows is it's just like, it's like, wow, like we finally have the visual diversity of opinions that actually matches the diversity of hip hop in, in, in its heyday. Because, you know, a tribe called Quest and De La Soul sounded different than Ultra Magnetic. And Ultra Magnetic sounds different than the Ghetto Boys. The Ghetto Boys sound different than NWA. And, you know, NWA sounds different than Too Short. And all at the same time, you've got you know, Outkast and the whole Dungeon family coming up. All those are different experiences. They're all connected by hip-hop. They all sound different. But when all those records are kind of coming out within months of each other, if you're a hip-hop fan like I was, and you're listening to all these different regions, and all these regions sound good and sound different and have something to say, you know, we never had that kind of diversity on the film side because there was always so many things kind of breaking it up. But now on the television side, we finally have the diversity of experiences that actually match what the music did back in the 90s. I'm excited not only for the diversity in characters, but for the diversity within the characters. We're seeing diversity in the complexity of the characters themselves. So I'm really excited to see that within Luke Cage as well. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. This is the whole thing about this. I mean, I've been talking about, about this character, you know, more than I think I'll ever talk about the character. It's weird for me because, you know, you get a job like this and you're just so excited and then you can't tell anybody shit at all. And then they announce your name being involved and then you just get deluded on Facebook. And then it's like you never want to talk about it ever again because the, the attention is overwhelming. And then you, you just get comfortable being in a bubble. And, you know, the fact that we all kind of work in secrecy. But then after you do that and after you start filming this stuff and after you start seeing the finished episodes, you just can't wait for everybody else to see it. And that's really kind of the biggest thing. You know, it was just really like just a, 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 a perfect combination of, of, of hip hop and geekdom, just, you know, inside and out, you know, 
that was one of the coolest aspects. I mean, like a lot of it for me is, is thinking about being in the writer's room because of the fact that like, you know, um, it's funny. I, I actually, I did put up a sign outside of our writer's room called, called it the uh, danger room because of all the mix of personalities. It was an interesting room because of the fact that it was the first majority black room that I was in, but we were all different. And so, you know, just kind of watching like the, the back and forth in a good way between, you know, myself and Charles Murray and um, Christian Taylor and Jason Horwich and Akela Cooper and Aida Crowe and Nathan Jackson and um, Matt Owens. Um, you know, and, um, and of course, um, Lopes, Matt Lopes, who was our writer's assistant, I mean, we would just be in there having a ball, just talking about all these different things. And there would be all these kinds of fireworks and this kind of chemistry in a good way of walking through this really playful but sociopolitic story. And then you just watch how the scripts come out and then the actors begin to respond. And then we begin filming these things and all the directors kind of get onto it. All the way around, it was just an incredible experience, you know. Hey, so it's KB here, and you've mentioned several times that this season will really be a roller coaster of a ride, you know, filled with lots of ups and downs. So tell us about what episode is your favorite, and which episode was the most challenging to develop? All of them were all challenging in their own way. <laughs> you know, some of them have off-camera politics that are hard to get into because, you know, I always say that, like, they probably had a ball making Norbit. <laughs> you know, it's, it's usually, you know, <laughs> the productions that are just like notoriously bad, you know, or when there's no tension at all that, that kind of make really bad work. But the ones where there's like a lot of different creative passions and not really tumultuous, but just trying to get all this done in this daunting way pushes through. So all of them have their challenges. But the thing was, was that Never for a moment did anybody not feel gratified by the result of what was happening because the actors were so positive. The writing was so positive. You have the, all these logistics in terms of trying to pull all this stuff off, but everybody came together. And so it's not really 13 episodes to me as much as it, as it is the memory of 13 different movies, you know, and man, it was just, I don't know. They, they all, I love them all. I mean, for different reasons. Episode two, the scene on the rooftop with Mahershala and Alfrey and, uh, we're really, well, you know, Cottonmouth, Mariah, Tone, Shades, and who else is in that scene? Turks in that scene. That scene to me was probably one of the best scenes that I've ever personally written. There's so many dynamics on that scene and then it explodes, but there's also humor and there's pathos. I mean, it's one of those things where it's just like you dream with, you dream about as a writer to, to pull all that off and then, to watch these actors and a director like Paul McGagan, who's such a genius at letting a scene just kind of play out. It was almost like watching a one act play unfold in front of you. And I, like, there were times on set, I, like I forgot I wrote it. I was sitting there just like, wow, what's going to happen next? You know, and when you get to that feeling that that's cool. But then at the same time, it's like episode seven. I'm extremely proud of that episode and love what Kayla did with it. At the same time, I also love what Charles did with episode 104 in terms of the, the origin of, of Luke Cage. 103, you know, the Christmas Addicts thing is just like, man, I, like, I, I love that whole thing. Even though it was, it was hellacious. People screaming at each other, Guillermo, you know, Navarro, who's a very passionate director, having to basically push everybody to do their best work on location in a very limited time. But that's really his genius. Not only is his passion, but I mean, 
beyond him being a director, he, this is an Oscar-winning cinematographer. And one of the movies that he shot that people probably first heard of or really, really understood him was he shot Desperado. He also shot Jackie Brown. And so it was his idea when he saw the location saying, look, we don't need to build a set. We can film this practical location, even though these these um, hallways are narrow. He just had a sense of like walking over Luke's shoulder. You're going to feel like you're kicking ass with him. And so that was the thing was just watching all that get pulled off. In addition to James Lou's um, stunt coordination. I mean, you know, you got used to that thing. It's just uh, I love that sequence. I don't know. It's like episode five. I mean, like Luke. Well, I mean, literally just watching Luke. Walk down the street in that suit, like man, we got a big shaft. I mean, this is, I mean, it's such a swagger walking down the street, like this is unfair, man. Like, you're never in your life gonna be as handsome as Mike Coulter. No, you're it's, not. You know, it's like, come on, like that's unfair, you know. I mean, it, it was almost like 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 some fashion shit. It's like, come on, I mean, like, oh, you almost want like to watch Mike Coulter walk down the street, you know? So you, you can almost do it like like. Fashion, fresh, like, basically walk where imagine if you had Idris versus Mike versus <laughs> Ursula in suits walking Good down. Child. I mean, it was, it's just like, come on, that's it. It's just unfair for the rest of us, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, and then I'm just trying to think what else. There are always these moments, I mean, not just when you're filming them, but when you're in post watching them. Like, I think post production is, is really my favorite part of the entire process because Filming everything is you do long hours and everybody's tired, but when you get in post and you actually start adding music to stuff and you start um, sitting with the editors um, and you watch the whole thing kind of come together, that's when it really when you realize what you have and what you don't have. And so I'm connected to all of it. I mean, but also there are moments, um, you know, after the segment that you guys have seen that are coming up in these new episodes that I'm like, man, I want to talk about the whole thing. I mean, because we go on so many different twists and turns. I think the audience is going to be really surprised. I'm hoping they're surprised. I could be really wrong, you know, and that's kind of the hardest thing about this is that you still, no matter what you do, you're in a bubble because you've seen everything. You you know, you've been a part of the writing of everything. And so it gets to a point where you no longer really have any taste. It's just like you just are going for what you know and you have to lean deeper into it because you can't even think about it outside perspective. But now I'm completely vulnerable. So I'm hoping that we made all the right decisions, you know? Well, I mean, I think that your passion alone for this project and and also all of the incredible people that you just named that have been really involved in this process, you know, make me look forward even more to seeing all of the episodes and I'm sure everyone else as well. You talked a little bit about it being more like 13 films than 13 episodes and you being involved in every step of the process. So what's your vision for the Luke Cage franchise, and what do you want fans old and new to walk away with? Well, that's a tough question. That's a good one. I mean, um, that's, that's the hardest thing about this, this, this process, is being on the, on the other end of the microphone. I, you know, because I'm I, this is an ex-journalist. I'm used to asking questions, not answering them. So I, I apologize <laughs> to anybody I ever interviewed. You know, it's amazing. All right, so let me, let me try that one. Hope for the franchise. My hope for the, for the franchise is that it feel like one big Bob Marley album. What I mean by that is Bob Marley is the one artist who can get political but never lose sight of the music so that a record like Get Up, Stand Up or 
you know, the belly full, but we hungry, you know, is musically just beautiful, but at the same time, it's something to say. And But the politics never get in the way of the enjoyment of the jam. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think people are going to read, you know, they, they read the quotes and Bulletproof Black Band and all that stuff. They're kind of like, oh, here we go. You know, like, they kind of go into this, like, I just want to watch Luke Cage. I, don't, I didn't sign up for all this political shit. And then they watch the show and they can't believe how fun the show is. And so it's almost as if the politics wash over them, but then when they go back and they start really looking at the entire tapestry, they realize, wow, this show had something to say that went beyond just the evolution of a hero. And so my thing about really the overall hopes for the show is that it breaks ground politically, musically, and does it in a way that's always entertaining and also just you get to see the different elements of what a diverse superhero universe looks like in terms of, I mean, here's the thing. Do, are we going to get a second season? I hope so. I mean, honestly, it's going to depend on people reacting on Twitter and mentioning the show, whether they love it or hate it. You know, it's just, I want people to react to the show. I want them to not be meh. Meh is like, there's so many, you know, that's the whole thing about too much television. It's too much. And so, I want people to either passionately love or hate the decisions that we made because at the very least we made people care about what we're doing. What was the other aspect of the question, I mean, you know, beyond the hopes for the show in the future? or Just kind of what you want fans old and new to walk away with. I, I don't know. I, I want them to think this is a damn good show. Like, I want deep, hardcore fanboys and fangirls to know that we love the Marvel Universe and to think that, you know, we're expanding it in ways that go in a different direction in the comics, but at the same time acknowledge the comics. But I also want to get, you know, the audience that would never be caught dead watching, in their mind, a superhero show. I want to prove that we're as sophisticated as any of the shows that got nominated, you know, this year for, for Best Show, you know? And that's the thing. It's kind of a hard, you know, you can't serve two masters, but at the very least, I wanted to come together with a collective of people who believe in their heart that this show that they're working on is equal to any other show on television, you know? And I think audience-wise, hopefully we get that. And for me, the music was an important part of that because the hip-hop stuff is deep in the crates, but then at the same time, when you have a show where you can have that, and then you have the live performances from Raphael Sadiq and Faith Evans and Jadena and uh, Delphonics. And then you also have, like, these needle drops like Mahalia Jackson and the stylistics. I mean, we go in all these different places that I think are really going to appeal to young and old. But then we still tell a hell of a comic book story. So I don't know who who's going to like this show. I just hope that they like it and they, they write about it and talk about it. Because I really think that this is the kind of show that could hopefully be really popular with a lot of people. Oh, I'm sure that it will. And, and if nothing else, we'll definitely keep talking about it because you I know, know it's going to be incredible. <laughs> so I know I mean, for a fact I mean, that everybody's going to love the show. I'm just, like, I'm just saying. Well, so <laughs> I, I guess, I don't know, this, this is like the one opportunity I, I have to kind of flip the tables on you guys. What did you like or not like about the show in terms of what you've seen? So, hi, it's Joy. So one of the things that I loved about the show that I've seen so far I jokingly call myself a senior Bronx correspondent of Black Girl Nerds because I'm from the Bronx, born and raised, and I live in Harlem now. And Mm -hmm. 
one of the things that I love from what I've seen about Luke Cage and from the interviews I've read is that it really is kind of a love letter to Harlem and even kind of starting off with the trailers with ODB and he is a Staten Island and New York hero. That to me made me very happy being proud to be a New Yorker um, who currently lives in Harlem. So that's definitely the, the thing that I love the most. No, great. Thank you. And also thank you for putting up with us um, blocking traffic uptown all the time. <laughs> I just I just moved back recently, so I I just missed the traffic. But okay. I would have yeah, no, though. I would have been the only one excited for the traffic. I would be like, oh, what are y'all doing over here? Let me just go over. Well, you know, it was funny because like we would we would shoot on Linux, and we shot like on the same blocks as as um, Mount Olivet, so it's really like 118th and Lenox 119th. And these tour buses would pass by, and they were like, what are you filming? What are you filming? And, and, and like you're supposed to Marvel wise, you're supposed to always say like. Oh, uh, you know, we're working on a commercial or something, something silly, right? But you, you see all these black people and they got cameras out there. So occasionally the bus would pass by, like, what do you want? I'll be like, Luke Cage. People are like, why are you saying that? I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm proud of this show, man. Like, we're out here. Like, you know, I, 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 I just hope that we kind of did Harlem justice. You know what I'm saying? It's KB and I actually have not had the pleasure of seeing any of it yet. So I'm going to be just as surprised as everyone else when it actually drops. But I am excited because I, too, also live in Harlem. I live on Lenox. So I am excited to see how Harlem, being that extra character that it always is in, in real life and definitely on the show, I'm excited to see how you guys bring that in for sure. Well, no, what's one, what, one of the things that's really interesting is that it, um, we kind of get into gentrification and we get into the different attitudes that people have about what's happening uptown. I mean, people are like, yeah, it's great to have Walmart and to have Whole Foods and stuff like that, but, you know, not at the expensive culture, you know, not, you know, not the expensive feeling like you're a stranger in your, in your own neighborhood. And so that's the thing. It's like, we have a different take on it than, than what happens in Daredevil with, um, with Fisk. I mean, we're dealing with some of the same issues, but we're dealing with them in a different way. So I'm just hoping that we're, that, you know, that we, that we're true to something that people kind of respond to. I can't say that we have a new wave of gentrification that just occurred and is currently occurring. So I am looking forward to digging into the uh, Luke Cage version versus what's actually happening right now and has been for about the, the last few years. Yeah, same with um, me. And what did y'all think of, uh, think of Simone um, as, as Misty Knight? Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. So excited. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... You know, seeing what's come out as of late with Vixen and, you know, some of these other shows that feature black female characters, you always get afraid that they're going to marginalize them, that they're only going to have a few lines, and then they're going to focus on the male protagonist. And I had that expectation going in of Misty Knight. When I saw those first seven episodes, I was like, oh, my God, she's actually got dialogue. She's got several scenes. We're we're seeing her character arc grow, and, and she's got a thorough, fully fleshed out storyline. So that was incredibly refreshing, and I, I look forward to those next six to see what develops of Misty Knight, because we all know oh. uh, what happens later on. But, yeah, I, I was amazed uh, that Misty was given a lot of agency, more than what uh, we've seen from other superhero shows that feature uh, women of color in the past. No, no, I, I mean, not to interrupt, but, but trust me, I mean, Simone Mystic is, is nobody's foil. You know what I'm saying? It's like, she was such an incredible find, and we had so much fun crafting that storyline and writing her scenes, and uh, 
episode 109, Dwick, um, has some great scenes with her. There's some great fireworks between her and Rosario and um, some of the other things that happened for the rest of, this, of, of, of the season and the series. The one thing I will reveal that this show is not only the evolution of a hero, it's the evolution of two heroes. It's not only about the evolution of Luke Cage coming out of the shadows. It's also about the evolution of Misty Knight, just in terms of, of her starting out as a detective okay. and at the same time kind of broadening her world, her world view. So she was definitely an anchor because one of the things thematically that we wanted to deal with was an outsider who becomes an insider and an insider to a certain extent becomes an outsider. And so two people that kind of start off one way and then at the same time, by the end, are have two different perspectives. And man, um, when you see what happens with her, when you see what happens with Alfred Woodard's portrayal of Mariah, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> it's just like... Yep. It, it just, I mean, you guys have seen episode seven. Seven's tip of the iceberg. Yes. I mean, and, <laughs> and, and, and the way that, that Alfred commands the scene and the way that she gets into it, I mean, this is different than any character she's ever played. And um, I'm so excited for people to see her do her thing. And then at the same time, I mean, you know, Theo Rossi really emerges as um, yeah, as yeah. shades. Yeah. I mean, like like I, like I said at Comic-Con, he, he's our little finger. Because episode seven is kind of where you begin to see that side and that we get deeper into that as we get, you know, more into the narrative. Um, and then Rosario, she has a great arc on, on this yes. because we really kind of really see the emergence of, of Claire Temple and the chemistry between her and Mike is, is also kind of off the charts. Not just in terms of just like, oh, like, you know, here are two very beautiful people digging each other. If we don't play it like that. You know, it's kind of like episode six where there's kind of like that Bruce Willis, Civil Shepherd, Moonlighting kind of tension where we really kind of let it build. Um, it's just really, man, any way you look um, on the show, I, I think that it has something to offer and something really fun. Absolutely. So I guess going into the final question, how do you balance that stripping of the stereotypes of Luke's character historically in comics? Obviously, he's a 70s character himself, as well as Misty Knight, was kind of built off of um, black exploitation during that time frame. Obviously, he's evolved throughout the comics dramatically from his beginning to now. But how do you balance stripping those stereotypes of his character historically while maintaining the core blackness of Luke? Because I think that's been consistent throughout his character throughout the comics. Stereotypes are largely about a lack of diversity, meaning that because you don't necessarily have the nuance. You fall into tropes of things that are semi-recognizable, and then that becomes the, the prevalent mood or tone. You know what I mean? So it's like when you watch those action movies with cops in the 80s, there's always the um, the black sheep. God damn it! <laughs> you know, like, I'm too you old know, for this shit. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that's a stereotype. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a different kind of stereotype. It's not like a step and stereotype, but there are kind of these kind of established tropes. And so the thing is, is that with this kind of show, you shatter these stereotypes because the thing about television previously is that you could only be one thing. If you're the big black brawny dude, you don't have an intellectual side. Because if you're intellectual, you're, you're a nerd. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, you know, if you're intellectual, then that's kind of weakness. So at the same time, you wouldn't necessarily be the one that gets the girl. 
And the whole thing about Luke is showing that you can have this big, brawny guy that's also sensitive, but doesn't lose any of his brawn, any sensitivity, but then also has an intellectual bent. You know, the thing about him reading Easy Rollins and, you know, being so well-read, and then at the same time also being into sports and, like, you know, showing that you can have a character that's all three at once. And then and then also with, you know, with what Mahershala does with Cottonmouth, showing that you have this scary, probably one of the scariest villains in any comic book universe, but what makes him scary is it's not... He doesn't have powers, but he doesn't need powers to, to be scary as shit. But then there's also a deep sensitivity that that once the audience finds out about that, they're going to be surprised by. And then, you know, when you have someone like um, Simone Mystic playing Misty, it's like she's a cop, and she's very much a cop. When we get deep into her, her cop prowess, that she's a really great detective, but we never lose the fact that she's a woman, and we also don't lose the fact that she's a sister, you know, and I think it was important to be able to show that, you know, you can have a sister doing this kind of thing. And she's not just like pining for a man or she's not like, you know, the angry, you know, stereotype that so much happens with with black female characters. Really, that any time a black female character gets assertive, it's like it's kind of going into like the, a smart alecky stereotype as opposed to, you know, somebody that is just as equally as compelling as a male character I and mean, has just as many depths and, it, and isn't necessarily as introspective about every decision, you know. So that was the thing was just really on all fronts trying to break things down so that people don't know what to expect. And, and really, when they look at the show, they just see a, a richness and a complexity from everybody, you know. Yeah, one thing that I love, and you made a great point, we always talk about how black people are not a monolith, but specifically black women are not a monolith. So to have Simone playing Misty Knight and playing a, a, a black female superhero, but then we also have Alfred Wooder, who's also doing kind of a black anti-hero slash like villain, and then we have Claire Temple, who is Afro-Latina, and she's really a unifier across all of these different worlds within the Marvel Netflix series, it's just so nice to see different variations of black womanhood just from the little that we've seen in the show. So I appreciate that. No, great. I mean, so here's the thing. It's like I mentioned, um, you know, Belly Me City of God as, as written by the staff of The Wire, but the fourth movie that I would mention that um, I should, because it's really a deep influence on me, is Love Jones. Um, yeah. Because... The music in Love Jones, the way it was shot, it's still one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. You know, it's like when you talk about Love Jones and Black Orpheus and just how, like, just the beauty of, of the diversity in front of the camera. And then at the same time, you kind of got this, you know, this kind of sexy vibe. I mean, that's the other thing was that, like, Love Jones is probably one of the best movies that I've seen in the last 20 years. I just hope that at some point, you know, Ted Witcher makes that another film or a follow-up of some kind because it's just like that movie captured so many elements of of the black experience that was different than what you had seen before. I wanted to kind of bring some of that vibe as well to Luke Cage and looking at what Manuel Villateri did just in terms of the look of the show and also the fact that we were kind of able to inject, you know, a sense of romanticism into all of this stuff. It's one of these shows I think people are definitely going to Netflix and show to. 
and let's just say, without spoiling it, some of the best chemistry I've witnessed on screen is between Misty Knight and Luke Cage, which was amazing. So you are on point with the parallels to Love Jones. Oh, yeah, no. You know what was funny was um, we had an initial scene that got cut, and what it was going to be was it was going to be Misty and Luke in a cafe. We actually were going to have coffee. <laughs> That's the funny <laughs> part about it. They actually were going to have coffee, and they were going to be in a, in a coffee shop, and the music that we wanted to build around was the uh, Prince's um, The Ballad of Dorothy Parker. I, I wrote a whole, I, I wrote a, a great scene, you know, and so the fact that we had to kind of change the coffee metaphor, it ended up working really well throughout the series, but yeah. but the funny thing about it was they, they actually, in the initial version, they did have coffee, but uh, we ran out of budget, so... <laughs> You know, we kind of had to do something else. But then when we got to that scene, um, without spoiling it too much, I was on set because it was a close set. And, I mean, that's how hot the thing was. And the thing was that was interesting was, like, I I know both their spouses. And so I was just like, I'm like, man, they're, they're going to kill me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, but then at the same time, you know, you know, the self is showing her me. Like, more, more, this is great. Oh, my God. Like, this, this scene is going to be amazing. But then on top of everything else, it's like I, I called Ali Shaheed Muhammad from the set and I said, man, you got to start working on some music for this joint right now. And he's like, what do you think? And I said, like, it's got to be something just like simple, but just like raw but in, in, a, in a really kind of dope vibe. I said, it's got to sound like maggot brain. But then at the same time, think about like, you know, Al Green's I'm Glad You're Mine. And then, you know, give it the vibe of, you know, Ghost Racing Ray's um, Wisdom Body. And, you know. I'm throwing out all these songs, and, and anybody else people be like, you're crazy, but like, that's the kind of shorthand that Ali and Adrian and I have, where I can do that, and they'll be like, okay. And then three days later, actually no, two days later, comes back with the exact song that you, that you hear during that, that scene. And when I heard that song, I was like, oh man, the song's dope. That song was so dope, it almost became a theme song. But I was like, nah, it was too smooth. I mean, Marvel for the theme song said they wanted something more upbeat. The one that I kind of preferred was the song that we use at the end, you know, when we play the end credits. But the thing was, was that Marvel knows what they're doing and Marvel and Netflix, because the song that we use for our Luke Cage theme song, which is really energetic and upbeat, it really, in a weird way, does help when you watch these things as a binge watch, because when you hear the upbeat song as a theme song, it really kind of propels you in every episode. And so... Probably the best part about this entire process is that you learn something. And so the biggest thing that you learn as a showrunner is that you don't have all the answers and that there are going to be times when you get vetoed, but you have to listen to everybody because everybody brings their wealth of experience. And when you realize that people are coming from a place of wanting to help and coming from passion, you have to recognize that. And you have to know when to say, you know what, I might be wrong on this. And I'm glad I was wrong on the theme song because I think the theme song that we have is dope, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Wow. I could talk to you about Luke Cage all day. <laughs> this was a great <laughs> discussion. Oh, goodness. Cheo, thank you so much for coming on our show. And please let our listeners know where they can find you on the interwebs and give us your social media shout-outs. Okay. Well, I mean, for me, um, let's see. So Twitter is C-H-E-O underscore C-O-K-E-R. You know, my Instagram is... 
what is it's Cheo C H E O underscore H O D A R I underscore C O K E R. I think that's what it is. I'm I probably need to get on Instagram more, but I I, I just have like I'm I'm a luddite, so like I I just discovered Twitter and I, and I finally kind of got a little I got better at Twitter than than I was, you know. But you know that's pretty much it. You know Facebook, you know I. I got to keep Facebook thriving, honestly, just because it's like, you know, I still enjoy Facebook. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, although I know that I'll have some interaction um, on Facebook, but really for me, um, Twitter is probably going to be the best way for me to communicate with, with the world at large and, you know, with pictures and kind of keeping people up on, on what I'm thinking in the show and just like all these, you know, magnificent opportunities to talk about the show. I, I really appreciate the fact that you guys um, had me on. And now I'm, I'm awake. I'm, I'm up for the rest of the day. So <laughs> it's funny. We actually moved to uh, Seattle. My wife is a pediatrician. And so she left UCLA and now works for Seattle Children's Hospital as well as University of Washington, Seattle. So I'm going to be the one commuting for the show. But, um, you know, so I'm still unpacking books and stuff like that. So I'm actually here in my office my home office, but it's like, I can't wait to knock on wood and get, get working on if we get the opportunity, season two of Luke Cage. So the only way that that happens, the only way that you guys will someday see what's bubbling in my head is if you tweet and react to the show as it's happening. Um, so please, 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 the people listen to the show, like just react to the show. If you love it, if you hate it, doesn't matter. Just tweet about it. You know, get, comment on Facebook. Get out any way you can. Even comments on, you know, on this um, podcast. Everything helps because the more that people respond to shows like this, it emboldens people like myself and people like Ava DuVernay and Donald Glover and, you know, the other powers that be to keep giving diverse, deep experiences because we can point to the fact that, look, there's an audience for it, an audience for it that loves it, you know, because... I think after a certain extent, people are saying, like, you know what, like, let's see what happens if we actually let people from the culture, you know, write about the culture and act in the culture without asking us for input on that, on, you know, on, on a cultural level. I mean, and they're really seeing it pay off. I mean, I, I still can't believe Donald Glover got away with, got away with the lamp. And, and I, I wanted to get away with it because, you know, just watching that show, I mean, it's so it's such genius. And the victory for that show, honestly, I know this is supposed to be the Luke Cage podcast, but fuck it. I mean, um, for me, it's that it's the first black show in the history of entertainment that's about nothing. Um, because anytime you pitch a black show, it has to be about something. You either have to do a, a movie about the first black person to do something, or it's got to have some tension because there has to be some eventual goal. And this is the first black show like Girls. I mean, you watch Girls, and I do watch Girls. And one of the things I love about what Linda Dunham did is that she basically, you know, did a really nasty version of Seinfeld. Because it's just really just a show about nothing. Right. About people's personalities and how they live life. But African Americans up until this point never had that opportunity. You know what I'm saying? And so the thing about this with Atlanta, yes, it's about the burgeoning rap scene and, you know, the kind of a fuck up that wants to become a manager. But like, you have these moments of just like realness and just these conversations that just go nowhere, but you just sit in these moments that we all recognize from our lives from, you know, watching that show is like, is like reminding me of, of, of like my twenties. I'm like, man, it's just like, I hope this cat makes it. <laughs> you know, 
it's just really uh so many so many great moments and um Lakeith what's um I can't remember Lakeith's last name. He he was straight out of Compton. He um was also in Selma. The brother who who's who's high all the time on on the show. I know who you're so, talking about, I just don't remember his last name either. <laughs> yeah. No, he he's a tr- I mean, all of them are the truth. Um you know, the the guy who's playing paperboard. Yeah. He's doing yeah, he, he's great too. I mean, he reminds me of Big, really. Cause the great thing about watching that show is like when people ask me, like, what was it really like to hang out with Notorious B.I.G.? And I'm like, yeah, it was, it was, it was like hanging out with Paperboy. Honestly. Because <laughs> there's kind of like this drug dealer vibe, but then at the same time, there's this humor about looking at his surroundings. And then there's also some intellectual moments that you just wouldn't anticipate from being in that situation. And I think that's what, that's really what the show captures so well is the fact that again, you know, no matter what you think we are, we always show that we are something deeper and something different. And I think that's really the most exciting thing about, you know, this new renaissance and really, you know, kind of like pull everything back to Luke Cage. That's really what Luke Cage is ultimately about. It's like, yes, it's a superhero show, but it's really a Trojan horse for, for um, sophisticated black culture because, you know, we're coming real with that shit. And um, I really think that, you know, hopefully the way that we were able to, to trick an entire generation of people who never heard of Gangstar and then listening to the music think that, thinking that they're, they're going to get plot points. And instead what they, what they, what they did was got it, you know, an education on, on old school hip hop. You know, it kind of it sets the palette for, for everything else because if you walk away from anything else from this show, it's not just in terms of, you know, Luke versus Cottonmouth. It's also, you know, you're going to know who Christopher Saddix is. You're going to know what all this cultural stuff is, but in a really fun way. So who knows? I mean, you know, I, I can't wait for, for people to, to see this show and uh, ultimately have fun with it. Well, we can't wait either. We are huge stands here at the Black Girl Nerds community of Luke Cage. And September 30th is when the show drops on Netflix. We will be live tweeting it. And use the hashtag Sweet Christmas. Cheo, if you want to jump in with us, you're invited. Oh, I'll, I'll be there. I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be actually, um, I wanted to be home. I wanted this to be home. Like, you know, I, I, I bought a TV to, to actually watch the show. Like, <laughs> like I, I, I used it as my excuse to finally upgrade to 4K. So I was all ready to be home on the 30th and, you know, Netflix and chill with my family. But, um, I got to promote the show. I'm, I'm actually going to be in DC. At Howard University on the, you know, the day that it opens. Um, Simone and I, um, you know, Simone is, is a HU alum. We're supposed to, um, actually speak and I think either show an episode or show clips, you know, but the thing is, is I can't wait for the 30th. Sweet Christmas is, is, is a great aspect. Um, so yeah, so definitely Sweet Christmas, you know, hashtag Luke Cage. I mean, you yes. know, yes, uh, like, man, we'll be on it. And also, we're using Misty So Lit, and uh, Simone acknowledged that hashtag. So, yeah, we're, we're going to be pretty much every hashtag that will be trending on Twitter that day will be for Luke Cage. Guaranteed. Oh, so. Oh, so. <laughs> What's going to happen? My prediction. I would say just, you know, you've seen the episode. I, I would just tell the world that's, that's listening to this, this podcast, get some sleep. Because you're not going to sleep if you watch one episode of Luke Cage. Yep. You know? I think it's the most addictive Netflix series to Snarkos. You know, I think it's, it's, it's going to be the thing where it's like, you say, you know what, let me just watch the first two, see if, if, if I can get to the show. And you get to the first episode, and you'll be like, eh, it's, it's cool, it's culture, I, I like the music, you know, 
but it's kind of slow. And then you get to that last scene, and then you're like, okay, right, let, me, let me see what they do with the second one. Then you get to the second one, and then you're going to be like, oh, man, I'm, I'm tired of fucking. I'm going to watch the third one. <laughs> then when you watch the third one, after Bring the Ruckus, yeah, you're going to be up. And then we need the fourth one, you see the tiara. Okay, let me see what happens with five. Next thing you know, you're going to be in episode seven. Then after you get to seven, then you're really going to be pissed at us. Because the way we leave seven. <laughs> That's why I was so seven. mad. I was like, y'all only gave us seven episodes to screen. Like, I got to see more after this episode seven. So you're, and that you're was right. A, but that was the thing about seven was that I think people might have thought that we built for that cliffhanger. You know, but we didn't. I mean, we just wanted there to be a pivot. I mean, my rule for the, for the show was that every fourth episode is a pivot episode. So if every episode is an act, so act, episode one is act one, episode two is act two, episode three is act three, and then the fourth episode is a pivot. And so we do that three times. So when you get that kind of shift, if you don't have the stamina to watch all 13 episodes at once, I would say watch them in, in blocks of four, because that way you get a kind of complete story with a twist, and then it's up to you if you want to keep going. But I think the thing that's great about it is that the show just has a continual, like, rise of tension. So that instead of it like going like this and then plateauing, we just go straight the entire time. Okay. That's what we will do. Watch it in blocks of four. And I also plan to live tweet it on Friday night, Saturday night, and then going into Sunday. So that's what we'll do. All right, cool. <laughs> Thank you again, Cheo, for coming on our show. It's awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. The next two segments feature previous episodes that we've done, one with Simone Missick, who's playing Misty Knight, and also our roundtable interviews over at San Diego Comic-Con. So we're going to play these episodes in our special Luke Cage show just for you. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. I am so excited, guys. We have Simone Missick here. Simone is playing Misty Knight in Marvel's Luke Cage series that you can find on Netflix. It will debut on September 30th. All of us are going to be all over that on Twitter. And I am so excited to have her here to talk to us about it. Thank you, Simone, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we have our lovely co-hosts, Karan and Latanya on. Thank you, ladies, for coming on. Thank you, darling. Thank you. So I, I want to start. Um, I want to call you Misty. I don't know. <laughs> 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 really about to call you Misty. Um, so, Simone, can you tell us a little bit about how you landed the role of Misty Knight? And did you read any of the comics? Uh, so for the first part, I just auditioned, you know, it was a very, um, simple process. It was probably the easiest audition I've ever had in my entire career. Um, and yeah, I did, I put myself on tape in my living room with my husband reading the lines and then went in and had an audition and booked the job, found out like maybe a couple days later, it was an unnaturally easy process, which is how you kind of know when spirit just lines up and God just puts you where you need to be. And it, what is meant for you is meant for you. Um, so yeah, that was how the audition process and, and the job landing happened. And then I had 
no familiarity with Misty as a character. I hadn't read the comic books um, growing up or even prior to booking the job. And then once I did get the job, I kind of, you know, wanted to keep as much of the comics and, and reading the comics as minimal as possible because I, I knew that we were doing something different. I didn't want to feel kind of, you know, locked into the idea of who Misty Knight is versus really just as an actor, immersing myself in the words that, you know, our, our writers and our creator had come up with. So um, I haven't read a lot of Misty Knight comics. I've, I've kind of skimmed, but the head of Netflix, I'm sorry, the head of Marvel, Jeff Loeb, was kind of like, you know, if you go into a comic book store and you try to buy some Misty Knight comics, people are going <laughs> to people are going to know. So he kind of terrified me from even going into a comic book store and buying some. So I haven't uh, I haven't done the the reading of the work yet. Two suggestions. Daughters of the Dragon with Colleen Wing mm-hmm. and Fearless Defenders. Mm, I have not heard of that one. Yes. Fearless Defenders is awesome because it's an all-women team. So, And it's women of all different nationalities. There's a Native American character. There's a Hispanic character. Of course, Misty. And then there's also um, a queer woman. So it, it's a lot of intersectionality and diversity. And it's it's a really great comic. So those wow. are my suggestions. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yes. So it seems lately superheroines and villains are finally getting solo films. Captain Marvel and also Black Widow and Harley Quinn was recently announced. However, all of these women are white and we need a black superheroine and Missy Knight. (laughs) I think Missy Knight is definitely closer than any other woman of color heroine right now. So why do you think it's taking so long? And are you prepared to say yes if you're offered a solo film? Uh, hell yes. I am prepared <laughs> to say yes. Doesn't Oprah say say yes to everything? I mean, yes. I, I would absolutely uh, be honored and, and be prepared and be excited about the prospect of what that is. And um, in terms of why it's taking so long, you know, I think that one of the things that being a part of this show and being a part of the Marvel family has really opened up to my understanding is how many people of color, not just black, but people of color read comics, read comic books, go and support, you know, films that are based off of that. And I think that it's the lie that's, that's been told in Hollywood about so many films starring people of color. Oh, it won't sell overseas or, Oh, there isn't the interest for it or, Oh, it, it won't do well financially. And it's a lie. Um, but it is a, a lie that's kind of been around since the creation of film, you know? Um, so I think that th- the testing of the waters comes from having non-women of color star in their own films and then slowly, very slowly, uh, the this has been the history. They will then say, okay, well, let's try, you know, this person. Let's see how that does. You know, we have Chad Bozeman getting ready to do Black Panther mm-hmm. and, and the yes. excitement surrounded surrounding that, all the excitement surrounding that is, I think, the opportunity for the people who make the decisions to go, okay, well, maybe we looked at this the wrong way. 
maybe there is a market for that. I just heard a figure that I think if um, it within the Latino community, I think they represent, I want to say 34 or 36% of opening box office sales. And if you don't get the Latino community out to support your film, it will fail. Mm. And you don't see films with brown people as the lead of these box office films. So to ignore that segment and not think that they are just as hungry to see people of color on the screen, I think is, is a fallacy. So, you know, a, a lot of change in Hollywood is slow, is slow growing, but in the past year with the conversations about Oscar so white and the conversations about diversity, I think that, you know, I hope that we can see some faster change and I would absolutely love to be a part of that. Hey, Simone, it's Karan. Hey, Karan. Hey, girl. Misty Knight on screen actually represents a lot of firsts in inside and outside of the Marvel Universe and yeah. in television, including yes. being the first definitively black woman and not one that's racially ambiguous. Mm-hmm. What was your first thought when you learned you had the role? I was over... Um, the top excited for the opportunity to portray such a strong, definitively black female character who isn't um, on the on the shoulder of a man. Mm-hmm. You know, I had someone asked me, they were like, oh, you're on Luke Cage. Are you his girlfriend? No, they said, are you his love interest? And I took so much pride in saying no. You know, that is not the who Misty Knight is as a character. Yes, we know that she has a, a man within the Marvel Universe that she is tied to, mm-hmm. but that is not who she is. She is a badass superhero of her own, and it is a first, and it is exciting. And, and it's uh, hard. It, as a human being, you want to just like run up and down 10 flights of stairs and like, I'm a black superhero. But then <laughs> on, on the other side of it, it's like, okay, but calm down. You still have to go to work tomorrow and read the lines and do the job. And, and so there was a little bit of um, pressure, you know, to do justice to this iconic character that so many people love and so many women look up to um, that, that was the way that I approached it. Not so much looking at it from the ego standpoint of this is me, you know, doing this great thing. It's more of, I have a responsibility to all of the people who have loved this character for as long as they have to do her justice. So it was, there was the excitement and then there was the, okay, now put your head down and do what you got to do. What did you learn about Misty while you were portraying her and do you like her and would you two be friends? Ooh, that's a good one. Oh, that's a really good one. Will we be friends? Yes. Now, Simone is a really, uh, <laughs> what's the word? Uh, an understanding and loving kind of a friend. You mm-hmm. know, I think my friends tell me I'm the one that they go to for advice and to kind of uh, talk them off the ledge. And I think Misty would be my friend that I would constantly be trying to talk off the ledge. Like, okay, don't, don't. Missy, don't go. You ain't got to whoop everybody's ass. You know, <laughs> maybe you should talk first. Um, 
And so I would, I would love to be friends with her. I have a lot of amazing female friends who are all strong-willed women and they don't take anything from anybody, uh, good or bad, you know, and, and that's exactly who Misty is. Um, some of the other, you know, I kind of don't want to share too many of the, of the details of how they have crafted Misty, but it was very, to me, serendipitous that there are a lot of shades of her that are in me. Um, when it comes to her background and just little details that, that you all will get to see and the fans will get to see on September 30th that I don't want to spoil for the show. Um, but I think we would absolutely be friends. And, and I learned just what it, what it means to be singularly focused on justice. You know, I think mm-hmm. as an African-American woman, I grew up in Detroit. I went to school in D.C. These are predominantly black communities, cities with, you know, a strong black constituency. So I'm very aware of our relationship to the police, our relationship to the government and to politics and to the prison system. And and so to be a woman who works within that system, trying to change it, you learn as as a person, as Simone, I learned just this this idea of what justice is from someone who looks at it in a very altruistic way, you know, a very uh, hopeful ideal of what is possible for justice versus, you know, Simone who looks at uh, Ferguson and who looks at the injustice that's going on in Chicago every day and isn't as hopeful. So I, I think Misty gave me the idea of either shit or get off the pot, either do something about it or you know, stop complaining from your backyard. That's beautiful. I'm going to switch up Kayla's question and ask something else here. Um, So here on Black Girl Nerds, we do a lot of live tweeting. Uh, It's a big part of our community. And I wanted to know, first of all, are you a live tweeter? And do you plan to participate with any of the fans on social media once this show debuts on Netflix? Because what we plan to do is we, we have to synchronize it since this isn't a live show. Uh, we're we're going to synchronize watching the show using the hashtag Sweet Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so we would love you to participate or do you engage at all with, with fans on Twitter? I... You know, to be honest, and and I'm sure if you've um, kind of done any cursory uh, research, this is my first big major role. You know, my extent of live tweeting was watching The Wiz live and and being like, ooh, what's this going to be like? You know what I mean? Let me see what people are saying on Black Twitter. But there is no... You know, this this is the first. This is a first for me. And so... I would absolutely love to um, live tweet with, with you guys and, and with all of the fans. Do I know if I am that adept at it? I don't know, but I'm going to try. Yes. I am absolutely <laughs> going to try because, I mean, that's kind of what makes it fun. Now, if y'all got to take bathroom breaks and, and I fall asleep at some point, <laughs> I won't hold it again. That's okay. You know, I, I might drop out for a second. It might get too real because, you know, people are people are honest on Twitter. People are, are very uh, 
you know, brutal. And, and I'm not sure if my ego can take it, but I, I sure will try. Misty so lit. Um, Misty so lit. <laughs> yes. um, another question that Kayla had, you actually already graciously answered uh, about your, your history researching the role and, and with comics. So my question to you is, what was your training like and what kind of representation did you see for women in the stunts, for, for the stunt industry? Oh, okay. So um, training-wise, you know, I... I've always been an athlete. I've always kind of worked out um, just pushing my myself physically and, and the different things that I do. And um, I had the blessing of having an amazing stunt double, a woman named Janelle Stevens, um, who has a company called Prowess PT Fitness. And one day on set, we were just talking and um, she was like, oh, yeah, I'm a personal trainer. And I, from that moment, she and I started working together. So I had the opportunity to not only work with my stunt double, but train with her. And she's a friend of mine now. I can call her that. But she helped me with, you know, not only just getting physically fit, but, you know, some fight training, um, some fight coordinating. And there is uh, there is a... enough ass kicking on screen that is mainly that is mainly just me yes (laughs) now when they come to you know flying through stuff and falling off of stuff and jumping through things that's not me (laughs) me. but if there is a punch that's thrown it's me so um you know that that was kind of the training going, going into it. And of course we get to do gun training and play around with weapons and, and shoot guns, which was surprisingly exciting for me. Uh, I didn't realize I would have such, such a, a like take such a liking to it. But um, yeah, that was kind of the preparation, you know, you just want to be physically fit and able to do whatever it is that they ask you to do. And they asked me to do some fun stuff Um so with that and with Janelle, it was kind of, you know, a one-two punch. Hey, Simone, it's Latanya. How are you? Hey, good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Um, outside of what we already know about Luke Cage, how will this show be different from other Marvel shows? Um, you know, we've we've seen Daredevil. We've seen Jessica Jones. I'm a visual person, you know, and if you look at those shows and you think about it just like the colors that they Mm -hmm. associate with it like you know daredevil is obviously red and jessica jones has the purple and so everything about those shows have those kind of cool or dark feels to them you know now when it comes to luke cage it's a lot of black people on screen we look good in color we look good in warm lighting okay so yes (laughs) can i get a just that like just visually they have hired some of the most talented and attractive people of color to be on this show um I mean there was one day when we were on set and I I'm, I can't say who who the other women were but um Alfrey Woodard who you know is is a part of the show yep. was was in the same room with myself and two other actresses who haven't been announced yet. So I can't say anything about it. But then there was also another actress who was there 
and then all of our stand-ins. And we took a picture because it looked like a dark and lovely commercial. Like oh it was goodness. just, yes. it was oh every shade. It was tall. It was short. It was thick. It was thin. It was light. It was brown. It was, it oh, was heaven. It was heaven. <laughs> I'm fanning myself right now. This is amazing. I mean, and there were so many days where, you know, you get, I, I will say this, you get accustomed to reading a script as an actor, unfortunately. And it'll say, Amy, 27, Bill, 35, Lisa, Black, 29. And so you go, oh, so all those people that I just read couldn't be Black? Because only Lisa's going to be, you know what I mean? So when you read the scripts, you, you go, okay, well, we know that all these other people in this scene are, are black or are people of color. This is going to be when they bring in the white person. And then you go to the table read and you're like, you black too? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so ain't no white people up in this piece? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, and you know, it was it was different. It was absolutely uh, a definitive statement of this is the way that we want to show our representation of Harlem yes. and our representation of Luke Cage. And it's not to say that there is not diversity in the show. There is, um, but there is a lot of black and brown and, and and just people of color. Period on the screen. So that alone is different. And then the things that we as black people bring when it comes to cultural influences, you know, the way that we talk, our music, the way that we dress. So the look and the feel of Luke Cage is going to be different from Daredevil. It's going to be different from Jessica Jones. It is just all of those things that you love about black culture. The reason the reason why we, you know, we scream when Beyonce drops lemonade. Just on on a day, you know, (laughs) all of those things that people celebrate about black culture are celebrated in this show. And it's not just, you know, all of the great things. It is the the things that need to be discussed within our community as well. And the things that need to be discussed within America in terms of how we treat the black community and people of color in this country um, is also handled on the show in a way that, we don't necessarily see that in any of the other Marvel series. So you will see discussions about Black Lives Matter. You will see discussions about gentrification. Wow. You will see dis- yes. discussions about what's going on in Harlem in terms of maintaining the people, the working class people and the neighborhoods that created what we know and love about Harlem. So it's a lot. You know, the show deals with a lot, but in a very real way that isn't contrived you know it's very current it's what we are seeing in america right now so that's you know kind of our little niche our our differences this is the blackest year ever i'm telling you i was the luke cage but now girl you have got me like going crazy over here (laughs) oh my god um, I mean, the cast alone, we've got Mahershala Ali, who a lot of people know from yes, House of Cards. Yes, we've I got Alfre Woodard. We've got Rosario Dawson. We've got just Theo Rossi. We, we just got an, a great cast, the mm. cast. And then to have, you know, the music that we're going to have. I mean, people are just going to be surprised. 
It gives me blown away. Mm. I know I was every time I read this. I was like, who y'all? Y'all got? Whoa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So Chio Hadari Coker, um, he had recently made a statement uh, comparing this show to The Wire. Would you say that that's accurate? Oh, um, I got to be honest here, guys. I haven't seen the entire season of The Wire, so that is okay. I just started on The Wire this year. <laughs> don't, don't feel I'm bad. also late. It, it I'm, I'm from husband. Baltimore, and I've never seen The Wire, so really, oh yeah, it's like looking okay. out the window. I'm good. Right, You're just looking out of the window. <laughs> well, all of the things that you described about the gentrification and Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter and on all of those social issues. Um, some of those kinds of issues were addressed on the wire. I mean, back in the day when it was actually aired, not right. uh, current issues that you're speaking of, but it, it was speaking to um, issues of how the community of Baltimore had been plagued by the drug trade and also the politics involved. Um, so I, I was curious to know if it those parallels matched. But if you haven't seen it, then check out the wire. <laughs> you know what's funny? Yes. It is my husband's. It is his favorite show. I have bought him the box sets. Like, I, it's in our home, and and he sat me down and we've watched several episodes. But to to really, you know, be an expert and draw those parallels. I mean, I I am technically the Idris of the show. Right. Age uh, yes. parallel in that way. No. That's not it at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, but no, it definitely does deal with uh, deal with, like you said, the drug trade that goes on within the community, um, gentrification that's going on, politics, and the corruption that exists within the people who are actually there to serve the community and and them taking advantage of it in that way. So those parallels are there. Um, but it at the same time is a superhero show and we don't have Marlo, Marlon, Mar, Mar, we don't, we don't have Jamie Hector (laughs) (laughs) whose character name I can't remember. We don't have Michael K. Williams. You know, we've got Luke Cage. We've got Michael Coulter with superhero strength and bulletproof skin Mm -hmm. going in and handling, you know, business. So I, I think it's it's a different thing, you know. I can see where the similarities can be drawn, but I think it's it's something that we've never seen before. We just have never seen a black man on TV as a superhero. We just haven't seen it. Um, so excited. So this is, I think, you know, we can we can say, oh, it's got a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but it's its own gumbo, you know, it's its own pot. Um, you mentioned early on um, that the auditioning process was very easy. Can you tell us more about how it went down and why it was so easy? Um, the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I know and that's I'm right. Gonna, and I'm going to be 100, 100, 100. Like, 100. <laughs> I uh, had gotten the the audition and got an email to me and had a little bit of, had heard about the show. And, and at the time they were calling the character Missy. Uh, so I had no reference point for what that was. I, you know, 
and they had not said that this is a Luke Cage Marvel superhero show. It was just like, this is an audition for a woman. Um, and so I put myself on tape, like I said, in my living room, very, uh, that's very normal for actors nowadays. A lot of things are cast, uh, they call it eco casting. You know, you put yourself on tape and if they like it, you book it or they'll call you in rather than wasting your time and theirs. So I put myself on, on tape and, uh, my manager, Stephanie Moy, who I love, I've been with her for a, a couple years, um, she calls me up and she's like, that was great. And you look great. And I was like, okay, girl, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> like she was really excited. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and, and so she calls me a couple days later and she's like, yeah, so they want you to come in. And I had an idea I had heard, you know, through, through the the negro nets of the com- the community <laughs> negro nets. Of, of black folk in hollywood you know i had heard that that they had another um actor in mind for this role that was their dream you know who they wanted mm. so i was like i don't know why y'all getting excited over here because i already know who they want it's like when uh the role of cookie lion might have come around and people were like i got an audition and the other people are like they want taraji they gonna get taraji you know what i mean it was kind of that situation where i already knew who they wanted for the role so leading up to it i was doing a play um i was in rehearsal and we had opening weekend the the Friday before the audition and the audition was on a Tuesday. So come opening night, I got the worst cold ever and was dog sick all weekend, lost my voice on Sunday. And I was like, I just don't even know if I'm going to be able to make it into this audition, let alone do a good job. So I went into the room so high on Dayquil and Echinacea and (laughs) every quill I could find that I was so cool. Like I was probably unnaturally cool. (laughs) They were like, hey. And I was like, hey. Because I had gone into the bathroom before and just prayed to God, like, just give me 10 minutes of not letting my nose run down my face. Just let me go in there with 10 minutes. That's all I need. And so when I came out of the audition, my husband was like, so how did it go? And I was like, I didn't die. And he was like, what? <laughs> like, he's <laughs> expecting for me to be like, it was amazing. And I did a great job. I was like, well, I, I didn't pass out. So I think, you know, that was a good thing. <laughs> he was completely, you know, just over me at that point. But then they called and they were like, yeah, you got the job. So like I said, it was, it was prayer and, and God and Dayquil that got me. <laughs> prayer, got God, me and good. Dayquil. Good to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, that, is, that is the trinity of that audition's, uh, that audition's success. Those were the three things I needed. Wow. Are you ready to be a superstar? Because you know that's going to happen next once this drops. You know what's so funny? I am not. <laughs> I am not. I am not. And I, you know, I, I think that um, I, I just got to got the, the chance to go see Beyonce and she was at the Rose Bowl. And, you know, to be a performer, to have to sell out an arena, you know, not to sell out a stadium, 
not to sell out a club, but to sell out an arena, like that's a, a level of success that you can you can see tangibly. And as we are going to the concert, there are all these people in the streets of Pasadena who you know are going to see Beyonce. And it, and you can see it. And my, my uh, husband is like, are you ready? Like, do you want that kind of success? Or are you ready for, for what that is? And, you know, people talk to you about Comic-Con and how crazy it's going to be and how excited people are going to be. And, you know, there are some actors who don't like Comic-Con. They're like, oh, it's a hassle. People are just insane. And then there are people like me who are like, hell yeah, I'm ready for Comic-Con. Like, this is what it's all about. <laughs> This is this is the opportunity to meet the people who make the stuff like this possible. Yeah. But I don't think I embrace the idea of not being able to walk to my grocery store or not being able to, you know, take my niece to the park or not being able to go to, you know, the movies with my mother. Like I don't accept that. And there are a lot of people who are extremely famous who people love, who lead normal lives. So yeah. in terms of like being a superstar, sure. As long as that means that I can still lead a normal life because I don't ever want to be able to not get on a podcast with you guys or not, you know, be able to, to just talk to people on an individual level, person to person, you know? And I think that when we think about superstar, we think people who are just untouchable and out of our reach. And mm -hmm. that, that's not... That's not how I got here. Those are not the actors that I admire. You know, that is not the way that I envision my career. So I am ready for all of the success that this project and this character brings. But I refuse and uh, deny the concept that I won't ever still just get to be Simone from Detroit, who went to Renaissance High School and Howard University and you know, my mom still tells me she don't like my hair or my outfit. <laughs> like, I'm still going to be that person. I love you, Simone. I, I just want you too. to know that. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for coming on our show. Before you go, can you just let our listeners know where they can find you on the interwebs and give us all your social media shout outs? Yes. Uh, Simone Missick on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, super simple s-i-m-o-n-e-m-i-s-s-i-c-k um yeah those are those are by you know my, my things instagram and twitter it's all i got so at simone missick on instagram and twitter awesome thank you so much again for coming on our show Miss thank Anna. you Yay! ladies y'all <laughs> just made me feel so good made me feel so comfortable and confident. Oh, and I love it when our guests are brilliant. Just brilliant. I love it. It's just everywhere. Just brilliant. And, and so y'all got some great voices too. Like, thank you. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. You dropped it down to the deeper register. Thank you. <laughs> Luke Cage is an upcoming TV series developed by Netflix, executive produced by Cheo Hidari Coker. Based on the Marvel Comics character of the same name, it's set in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which ties and shares continuity between Daredevil and Jessica Jones, which will eventually lead up to a Defenders crossover miniseries. Mike Coulter stars as Luke Cage, Mahershala Ali stars as Cottonmouth Stokes, Simone Missick plays Misty Knight, Theo Rossi plays Shades, Alfred Woodard plays Mariah Dillard, and Frank Wally plays Raphael Scarf. 
Each of those actors, including the head of Marvel Television, Joseph Lieb, is featured in this segment. This was a roundtable interview, so just keep in mind that there is a lot of ambient background noise between other interviewers at the table surrounding us, so you may hear a little bit of feedback there. And also, what I'll do is just make a quick whisper announcement before each segment when we switch roundtables. And again, because of the background noise, some of us as press, even though I did ask questions myself, Connie, who was there, asked questions, and other outlets ask questions, you don't get to hear it because of a lot of background noise. So I had to cut that out and just play the responses to each respective question. So just keep in mind that you're going to hear the actors giving answers to questions that you didn't hear. Um, but it's pretty clear and you can understand exactly what they're talking about. So all you Luke Cage fans, I think you're going to really love this segment. Enjoy. Never gamble with um, Cheo Hidari Coker and Mike Coulter. And never name a show after a lead actor. <laughs> with the exception of Mike Coulter. Because the thing is, is that as, as Luke Cage, um, he just... Oh my God! I mean, well, first off, I've been trying to take a bad picture of the brother for um, a year, and it's impossible. He's always backlit. You, you'll notice like these photos. Even when he sits down, it's like he, he looks amazing. But the thing is, is that he just so embodies the character, and you know, ultimately, as a quarterback for, for the entire team, he really um, he leads by example. But he's fun. He's jovial. Everyone has a. You know, when, when he's on set, it's like it's fun. At the same time, he knows his lines. Which, I mean, I know that sounds cliche, but it's so important that you have actors that are invested in the show and, and on everyone's time because when you don't, that's when you get the delays and that's when bad feelings happen. I mean, he's just, he's the next level. And um, I don't know, I mean, so have you guys seen all seven? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Hello. 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 I just had a little snack, so I got some energy, buddy. See? <laughs> or as I always say, see, before and after. <laughs> he's, he's hard on himself. He's, you know, he's aging gracefully. I was going to pass what I thought you said, sure. First well, person speaks. All right, all right. So we'll do that that way. Well, the thing about this show is... Season one is about how does one become a hero? I know that because of the comic book, everyone's thinking hero for hire. But what we wanted to do with season one is you have somebody that's reluctant to even be a hero. What pulls somebody out of the shadows? And once they're out of the shadows, what are they going to sacrifice? And even in sacrificing that thing, what's going to keep them pushing forward? And so Luke Cage is a character that's dealt with a lot of tragedy. But there has to be an optimism. It has to be something that propels them forward. And so that's really the thing that we deal with. Like, I hate to say the Marvel cliche, but it's true. With great powers come great responsibility. One thing that Jeff Loeb always said is that Marvel heroes are um, reluctant from the standpoint of they're not happy to have their powers. I mean, Matt Murdock would much rather see and have his dad in his life. You know, Jessica, as we know from her series, is very ambivalent about being a superhero. And Luke is no different. And so this is really about how somebody without a mask and without a costume is pushing forward in a community that really needs it. Yeah. 
try to get a subway and be left alone, get, get uptown, you know, just do the normal things that people do, you know, stop in restaurants, have a meal, you know, he doesn't want all the attention that comes with being a superhero, which is a part of the series, that's going to be a part of the experience that we have, and that's part of the story, it's like, you know, once he does step out of the shadows and, and, he, and he takes a hold of the superhero, you know, position, then what does that mean for his, his life, you know, you know, so it's, it comes with positives, but there are some negatives too. <laughs> Negatives? Yeah. Oh, now you need to be specific over here. <laughs> ah, I was hoping you let that slide. I'm like, ah, okay. Well, negatively, I mean, when people like, like when people expect things from you, then now you, you're like a, you're like a, in a sense, you're a role model. I mean, who, who wants to be looked up at, looked up to? You know, because the responsibility is that you have to be better than you know than maybe you are have capabilities of being. Like you, you know, we all have flaws, and Luke is no different. You know, there's a, you know, the part of there's a part of. Um, not give too much away, but in, in one of the episodes, Luke talks about, well, being guilty, being not guilty. What does that mean? We've done things, we've all done things that, you know, we are responsible for and we never necessarily had our comeuppance. And, and so if you get away with it, does that mean you're good because you got away with it? Or if you get caught doing something that you really didn't do and you're being punished for it, but you did, you got away with something else, you know, is this your karma coming back after you? So I think, you know, with him, he's afraid of being held into a higher standard. That's something I don't think anybody really wants. I mean, I mean... No, I mean, we all want to be looked at in some regard as being good people, but when someone shines a spotlight on you and, and, and a microscope is, you know, you put in a microscope, nobody really wants to be examined. And I think Luke is no different. He does not want that attention. And then also, I mean, the thing that we can't forget is something that we also deal with is the fact that Luke is a fugitive. You know, there comes a sacrifice with his power to his freedom because the more people that know about him, the more they could possibly find out the secret he harvests is called Lucas. You know, and as we explore in the first seven we're not really talking about it but you guys have been lucky enough to see it adds a certain dynamic to everything that he does because I mean he really doesn't want this attention and he's got good reasons to not want the attention thank you Um, but that's the thing that he you know he does it anyway and it's really what happens you know after episode two that compels him despite it all that he cannot just lay back in the cut, as he, as he puts it. I mean, he really has to accept, you know, the responsibility of, of heroism, you know, and heroism's tough. Yeah. Well, Harlem is just like, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's a place that is filled with history. I mean, you know, Adam Clayton Powell is not just this old statue. He actually, you know, walked the streets of Harlem as did Malcolm X, you know, Lennox Avenue, Malcolm X Boulevard, Martin Luther King. I mean, you're you're both left with political history, you're left with musical history, you're left with just um, crime from the standpoint of Frank Lucas, Nicky Barnes, um, Bumpy Johnson. I mean, probably three of the biggest crime figures in, in American history, in terms of black history, all come from Harlem. So, Gangsters, yeah. Yeah. We really wanted to balance all these things, because the one thing about the Marvel Universe that's different is that it takes place in real New York. And so, we wanted really that whole, you know, the cotton club of it all, you know, like a, which is probably like a big influence on, on me in terms of I've always loved, that's one of my, I mean, The Godfather is my favorite Coppola movie, but... 
Fine. The Cotton Club is, is another great movie. I don't know if you've, if you've yeah, seen it. Oh, yeah. Like, it was Harlem's Paradise is kind of a mix of the Cotton Club and Linux Lounge and, and Shaft. And, you know, from the standpoint of you have underworld figures, politics, all in one mix. And, yeah, you had, you know, everything from Wu-Tang to Adrian and um, Young and Ali Sheikh Muhammad's score. It's just like, it's, it's on. Uh, well, I have to correct you. I, I did not read the comics growing up. This is I, I, after I got the role. I started looking at the more recent um, incarnations of the comic. The one, obviously, with Alias, because that's the first thing we tackled with with Jessica, that character, how he and Jessica's story was was developed. Um, because that wasn't in the black exploitation seventies. That wasn't there. So this is all like kind of new. And um, how Empowerman looked at some of those comics. So for me, what was re- relevant was the fact that we didn't have to adhere to all of the of the history of Luke Cage because. It's only applicable to a certain point. We're talking about 2016, so what Chael was able to do, because we had sort of uh, been given, or he had been given the reign to create a world using the characters that already pre-existed, and then, you know, fleshing them out, you know, expanding on them, making it work the way he thought it should work to create a story that we were trying to tell that was of, of 2016. So this is a Luke Cage that has been reinvented in a sense, and that was what excited me because I didn't want to be, you know, pigeon-held to the, what we was established throughout um, the 70s and later on because it just wasn't necessarily something that, that spoke to me, and, nor I think was spoke to speak to the, the society that we live in today. So because because the, the problems we're dealing with right now are real problems, and so I felt like it would be necessary to have a guy who was dealing with the world from a real standpoint of like I need to figure out how I'm going to get from one day to the next and, and, and what my struggle is, and in having that struggle. He's dealing with people in society and the community that have similar struggles that he has. That's what makes him relatable. You know, yeah, he's you know, he's he's on a hard he's falling hard times for reasons not you know not of his own of his own um, making. Where yeah, he needs a job, he needs to figure out how to like make ends meet. And but he's a good guy, strong character, wants to do right, wants a chance to do well. But he has to kind of like get over his past, and people have to allow him to get over his past. He's avoiding some things, but ultimately he's a good he's a, he's a good apple. He's a good nut, and so we're. Trying trying to figure out how to make this guy grow into this, I would say it's a journey of a man and a superhero, and simultaneously as he grows, you, you, you find, he finds out who he is, and somehow, sometimes he needs other people to help him find out who he is. There's characters that we deal with that you're going to find that when he comes into contact, they know more about him as a person because they've observed him, and he's going to learn from that, and, and, him, and him learning from that, he's going to start teaching other people about themselves. It's kind of like holding a mirror to yourself, because he wants to create superheroes out of everybody. He's not, he's not trying to be the superhero for Harlem, he's trying to get Harlem as a society and as individuals to start standing up and doing things the right way and, and, and then that's how you that's how you change a community one well, person at a time the way I kind of look at it is like I kind of look at the story as kind of being like a James Brown record from a hip hop perspective rather than playing the entire record you might chop up a little bit of Papa Don't Take No Master you might take a little you know of funky drama or you might take little bits of it and then you take the ch- and chop the record and then all of a sudden out of that you've made something that sounds different than the original but you still feel the elements of it so in terms of Luke Cage's past whether it was you know the original run in the 70s um, or you know the, the Power Man and Iron Fist comics that I grew up with really 
Um, there are elements of that there. We, we, you know, the sweet Christmas, sweet sister of it all is definitely in the show. <laughs> yeah. But, at the, you know, but at the same time, you know, and you, you, you might, without spoiling everything, I mean, you know, there, there's some, some, some chain belts and some tiaras somewhere. Yeah. But at the same time, we really wanted something that Mike was saying that was forward-thinking, modern, and adaptable to what's happening today. Because... When people talk about black exploitation, I mean, immediately you think like bell bottoms and, and big, big hair, hair and guns. Yeah. But you have to look at what black exploitation really was. All it was was it was filmmakers saying, "I want a black hero to have this, to do the same stuff that Steve McQueen and Sean Connery yeah. and John Wayne get to do. They get to walk in the middle of the screen." kiss the girl, kick ass, yeah. rather than, than being somebody that is always carrying water as a comic relief or dies in the first 50, you know, 15 minutes. Yeah. That's all black exploitation is. I mean, of course, it went in these different directions, but essentially it was empowerment. And so what we did with this show is, like, you now have a black hero at the center of it. And the thing that I always try to say about it is that he's, it's a show that is unapologetically black but at the same time shows that in being that, there's nothing to apologize for. So it's a, it's it's not, it's a definitely in the deep end of hip hop, but it's not done in a way that alienates anybody. If anything, I kind of feel like a city of God. I, I kind of feel like it's other entertainment that even if you're not from the culture, there's so much verb and energy, you're gonna want to take the time to kind of learn things about it and kind of get into it. And so, but if you but if you're from the culture, it's like, oh shit, this is like, yeah. you know, this this has an attitude of it. It's kind of the you know Wu Tangification of the Marvel universe. Yeah, you know, so. I, I don't know. There was. I don't know. That was a prerequisite that we keep those slogans or those 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 terms like you know, sweet Christmas and and, and sweet sister and all those things. But we did it and we owned it and you know we didn't explain it. It is. It just is. Like nowadays, you know, terms come and go. Like sometimes people say stuff and you go, oh, that's a new term now. You go, what does that mean? And that it may stick or it may not stick. You know, back in the day it was psych. You know, I mean, I just I was just kidding. Psych. Will psych come back? Maybe. Well, um, well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like you know, lit's the whole thing. I'm, I'm old. So everything's dope. Everything's dope. That's my era. And, and, and that's dope to me, gotta come back. It's to me, that's gonna stick. It's you gonna know? come back. I mean, uh, you know, um, one of my favorite black quotation films is Blackula. Look at Blackula. There's nothing. There's nothing different about Blackula except he's black. It's. A, I mean, the story's the same. He came from. He came from Africa, and you know, instead of Transylvania. And he had the, he got the girl, and he was you know couldn't come out in the in the daytime, and his skin burned. It was all the same, and I didn't think about it, it was just Blackula. It's it, it is it is what it is, and it's funny because you go with me, he's just playing. That's all we, that's all it is. It's just you know that's it. Go with it. Yeah. Uh, so question specifically for you, since the hip hop thing keeps coming up. Um, you're the star of the show, yeah. yet all of the musical sequences in the first half of the season happened without you. Thank you so oh much. yeah. <laughs> Are you just like hanging around on set for the scenes that you worked in, just so you can? We can't discuss plot point. Plot point, but so the, some of those music. I did try. I did. I did try. Um, I, I, I hung around for several of them. Some of them I missed. Just because it, either I was not around or I, I, was, I had to, because you know we have two units sometimes, so they would be filming those things while I'm doing something else. So I wasn't able to always be there, but I, when I could, I, I was, you know, because it was it was, a, it was an event, you know. Somebody's performing, I, if I can, I, I'm coming to see it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. 
I mean, but that's the what? thing. It's like, you know, oh, coming yeah. from, from being a, a hip-hop journalist and, and kind of being able to just call D-Nice and be like, hey, D, you know, or, you know, the other, a lot of friends like, like Faith Evans, you know, Raphael Sadiq. I mean, you yeah. know, it's like, these are not just figures. They're people that, that, I, that I've known for years. Even with Ali, with Ali Shade Muhammad, I've been writing about a tribe called Quest and Spin Marauders. I mean, since Low End Theory. So it's like, it's able well, being able to just reach into the Rolex and say, like, hey, can we do this? And then have it be cool. It's just like, it's part of the fun of the, of the show. Yeah. Is that, you know, you never know what to expect. <laughs> oh, we got to rotate? Okay. I forgot it's not our own table. All right. No, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, they don't thank rotate, guys. Uh, we got to rotate. Oh, okay. I was like, you gotta, you're going to tell us to leave, right? Oh, yeah. You're going to tell other people to leave? I'm going to tell us to leave. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. Joseph Lieb and Theo Rossi. Hey, guys. Hey, everybody. We're wearing shades for our interview. This is it. This is the way it's happening. This is the only way that we can do this. We're keeping a mask in front of ourselves. So if we ever look tense or anything, you don't see it. We are shades. We are shades. Which is so interesting, by the way. I was just saying, learning how to act with, like, I've never, you know, I've worn sunglasses, you know, at different shows where you take them off and then you kind of do your acting. It really is a whole different thing. You have to actually move your head more to make a point because it's not, like, all in your eyes and stuff. And it was funny is I was actually watching Daredevil to kind of see how he did it. Because you don't realize that he's acting most of the time with his glasses on. And I was like, oh, he's always moving his head off. So and he's directing towards someone. Oh, so that. So it is a, it's a whole different thing. You know, I got to tell you, it's funny. When you're in, like, certain scenes that are, like, darker, a lot of the shows, you know, late at night or in clubs and stuff, I have run into many things. <laughs> Like, can we get like a fake pair where I can see it on one side? I don't need the polar, polarized lens on it. But no, it was very, he, I've walked into a few things. There was no method, it was real. <laughs> I played the fifth. No, um, I don't, you know, you know, um, uh, uh, you guys have seen what you've seen, and it's, uh, there's, there's a lot going on in there. Um, I, I think sort of the, the when we started out to talk about Luke and, and how that world was going to be revealed to everybody, it, it's always best to stay as grounded as you can. And, and while there's a long history with this character, um, you know, I think starting out, what we wanted to do was be able to, to to bring to life someone who, if you're a Luke Cage fan, you you it's it was the first question everybody asked, which is who's going to play Shades. Uh, and by the same token, it, it was important to us to be able to to allow that character to grow and be integrated. And and when Theo came in. You know, it, it really wasn't a question of who was playing the part. It was just it simply you know, came in because one of the things that's that's important to us is that when you look at at the way that Mike is playing Luke, you know, he is a larger than life personality. He is a larger than life presence, uh, and 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 so. You know, we needed somebody who, in many ways, was not intimidated by that. In many ways, that didn't even matter. And and what was kind of fascinating about the way that, that Theo brought to the role, which was, no, I, I'm actually the hero of the story. So it, it, it's not a problem for me that this this person that's a disturbance and what I need to get done will just eliminate that person, and then we'll continue with our story. Yeah, and I think, what, you know, what's, and I say this, and, and I say it every day when I was at work, it's like sometimes you forget 
because you don't think the word superhero. You're on like a superhero show. You're, you know, you're just in there living in this world that it just so happens that there's a guy in it who's very strong. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, but you're just going about your day doing your thing whatever that is and you just happen to be in this world with people who have these strengths or powers or whatever but to me it was no different than the, you know the same mindset the cunningness and, the, and then all the games that are being played it's just he just happens to throw you halfway across the world <laughs> and again I, I mean I think that's what's important about all of our uh, the Marvel television shows, but in particular the, the shows that we're doing on Netflix, is is that it does come from a very real and grounded place, and so it is for all intents and purposes, it's the story of a man who has to accept responsibility for who he is. That's the story. If you watch that story and you're caught up in that story, and then oh by the way, he can also bench press an automobile. That's great, but that's the icing on the cake. If, if what you do is you start from a place of He's got superpowers and he's bulletproof and he's going to come in and there's going to be big giant action. You'll hit an audience. You'll hit the audience that's here at San Diego Comic Con and they'll be very happy with you. But we're trying to tell a story that resonates with everybody. But they probably can't tell you what the story was that they just saw. It was just a lot of action, bang, boom, this, that, and then they don't really remember what was the story. What was the point of that story? And then when you're dealing with one of the greatest comic book writers, you know, and you're dealing with, you know, um, Everything comes from an extremely real place. Every move, every look, everything that happens from minute to minute, every character, as I say, it's about the relationships. It's coming from a real and organic place. That's where you're supposed to start. Because all that other stuff is just bonus. And, and when, we would, when we would talk with our directors, it was, this, it was the thing that we would always try to make sure that they understood, which is it's very important that what happens in this scene has nothing to do with you're on a superhero show. For all intents and purposes, you're watching a crime drama. For all intents and purposes, you're watching a story of redemption. If you can get those things to come across, then everything else will work out fine. The audience will actually suddenly go, oh, we forgot. There's, oh my gosh, this whole a fight broke out in the middle of a soap opera. So it, that's basically what you, you want to have happen. There are times I was watching Jessica Jones and all of a sudden, like, be those rare times where she like, jumps up to the balcony. I was like, oh, man, I totally forgot that you could do that. I didn't even realize that because I'm so into exactly what's happening in her struggle and in her thing. I think that it's the same with us. Yeah. So that, that's how you know the job is being done. And that's exactly what's, you know, the same exact thing that we're doing here. That's why we're so excited about it. Jeff, can you talk a little bit about actually from a Marvel kind of top-down perspective how, you know, this is the fourth installation in the Netflix collaboration you guys have done, how you approach kind of the meta-level storytelling? Uh, Look, it's a very good question, and, and you know, as the person who is the head of television and is responsible for all of that, the, the best part about it is is having a great team and having a group of people that, that starts with Alan Fine and Dan Buckley and Joe Casada in New York that are, that are continually looking after the whole grand scheme of it, but also on the ground level of having people like Jim Corey, who's our head of production, and and uh, Kareem Zarek, who is sort of responsible for the day-to-day -day of what's happening on the shows. Um, you know, it's those kinds of people that care everywhere that of what it is that we're doing. Is there an overall story that we're telling? There is, but it's also, we have a responsibility to, much like in the comics, 
to tell stories that will exist on their own. So that if you've seen Jessica Jones and you met Luke Cage and Jessica Jones, awesome. We think that's great. But we can't bet on that. We have to be able to tell a story that when you come into this, you've never met Luke before. You don't know who he is. You don't know what his story is. You don't know what his past is. Some of that stuff we purposely left out of Jessica Jones. Um, but the reason why Mike and Luke were in Jessica Jones was because that's their story. And it was, and Mike said something earlier that I thought was really interesting, which is Jessica Jones was from Jessica's point of view of who Luke Cage is. You didn't see scenes with Luke Cage on his own doing things. Now he comes to Harlem in order to figure out his life. And we are now going to be able to see the world from his point of view. Uh, and in the same kind of way, but you know, next up when we get to see Danny Rand and we get to see the story of Iron Fist, we're going to get to see a whole different view of where these street-level heroes are. Uh, and, it, and I think if there's only one meta thing that we do look after is, is that you know, there's no bigger fan of the Marvel movies than I am. But the, at the end of the day, the Avengers are here to save the universe. In this world, these street-level heroes are here to save the neighborhood. And in some cases, are here to save themselves. And, and if we can make you care about the people that are in the show, and we can make you care about the hero, it actually, on many levels, you can empathize in what's going on even more so than the giant epic roller coaster wonderfulness that are in the Marvel movies. But what's at stake in those movies is so huge and so beyond what it is that we're going to do. And a lot of that also has to do with the fact that we're on television. And because we're on television, it has always been that TV is something that you invite into your home. You're not in a theater with a screen that's 400 feet wide. It's a very intimate experience. And what's more intimate than the way that people are now watching television is they're watching on their phone. What do you do with your phone? You press it against your face. So if, if it's going to be that intimate, it better be something that is compelling. Because people need to have a reason to stay and watch. And in our particular case, they have to stay and watch for 13 hours. It's not as though our story is going to get wrapped up in two hours of, of neat little, you know, incredible adventure. Uh, you know, our stories need to be told in a way that you're, you are compelled, you are driven, you are absolutely just hungry to find out what's the next episode. And hopefully when you get to the end, to go back and watch it all over. And that's the humanization of it. And I think that's such a beautiful, you know, uh, what it is. It's how now with television, it's your choice. You're you're going to either go to that next episode or you're not going to. With a movie, you're in it. You sit down, you're in. Bad, good, indifferent. We've all walked out of movies and go, oh, man, that was terrible. Why did I just sit there? But you sat there for two and a half hours or three hours or whatever it was. But the television, you got to make people go to that next episode, that next one, the next one. The only way you're going to do that is by getting in touch with the humanity and making them feel something in those characters that relates to them, whether it be reluctancy or taking a chance or heartbreak or something with relationship, anything. Sunglasses, absolutely. Everybody wears absolutely. sunglasses. Everybody, everybody knows like, what shades are. They might not like them. They hurt your nose sometimes. But you know what? you got to do it. You gotta, it's better for your eyes. And your skin's very soft around. Um, you know, it's very sensitive. I noticed. I stood out in the sun yesterday and they kill it. should have wore sunglasses. should have took my own advice. So, so that is, you know, that is such an important point. And I think that that's what's so intriguing about television in general right now. 
you know, is that people are going there for stories, into the stories, and this is absolutely no different than whatever shows are being awarded, awards, and all this kind of stuff, high drama, as they might call it, you know, it's no different than any of this. That's what we're doing. Well, I, Hell's Kitchen doesn't exist anymore because it's all been gentrified, so in order for us to be able to, it, it, it absolutely was. Well, we were shooting in Harlem. No, I we we've said from the very beginning uh, that there are really five defenders. There's Daredevil. There's Jessica Jones. There's Luke Cage. There's Iron Fist, and then there's New York City. Um, and it was always intended to be that way. And so, you know, we shoot all over the city. We're on the rooftops. We're in the subways. We're up in Harlem. We're down at the docks. We're, we're everywhere that we can go. And so we're trying to get to a, to a place where it does have an air of authenticity to it. Some of those things you, you can't do and are on a stage because it's just, you know, that's the best way for us to be able to do things. But for the most part, I, I'm in absolute awe of our production team uh, in, in the fact that, that, you know, we try to get out as much as we can. And, and uh, you know, I think Theo can speak to that meant being on some yeah. pretty cold nights. We shot the dead of winter. Yeah. We love so it. And, and actually, that's one of the things that is... We were talking about this yesterday. Is is much like it's very hard to tell it's raining on film unless you actually augment the rain or you light the rain. And sometimes you're sitting there and you're watching. And if you're and the problem is if you're paying attention to the rain, then you're not the drama. Yeah, we're is not, not doing our job. Yeah. But but you can sometimes notice on people's shoulders that they're wet, and you're going. I don't. But it's not. It doesn't look like it's raining. And the other thing that that we we found is is that for the most part you don't see people's breath. And, and I'm lucky enough that I'm there in a parka in, in Video Village, like looking at a little screen going, yeah, we're ready to move on. These guys are saving I have a thin layer of gabardine of a suit between me and that cold weather. Exactly. Cold weather. But with Harlem, it's like you can't fit. If you're from New York, you realize you know when you're in Harlem because the buildings are lower, the streets are wider. It's just a different feel in Harlem than it is, you know, for, say, Staten Island or Brooklyn or Manhattan. You just feel different. And that's why we were so lucky to be up there actually shooting. It's, you know, it's, it's just incredible to be a New Yorker and, and shoot. The, the, the architecture, the people in the street, the way that the streets are run. Uh, and then just uh, the thing that the word that we always come back to is the musicality of it, which is there's a rhythm to Harlem that is different from anywhere else in that city, and and it and it infected and affected the way that we were making the show, and and that was all Chao. That was from the very beginning. Chao came in and just talked about how important music was. Let's go. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care. Simone Missick and Frank Wally. <laughs> How's everybody doing? Good, 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 good. Yes, yeah, please. That last table was awful. I don't know what they were drinking. They were drunk. And there was water in their cup. Uh, he was putting, you know, put his hand on my knee under the table. I don't think that's inappropriate. He feels uncomfortable. That was yes. my knee. Oh! <laughs> that explains it. Yep. Thank you. Um, you were basically the first uh, African American 
female heroine that we get to meet in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, and it's way past time and about, you know, like awesome to see it's you. about damn time. Exactly. <laughs> um, so what, did you feel any pressure or what was that like to kind of take on the role of Misty Knight and that other mantle? You know, I think with everything there's a certain amount of pressure to be true to who you know the fans love and who the fans want to see. But at the same time, as an actor, you just have a responsibility to tell a story. And so it was exciting to be able to tell this kind of story, to have this character who's got so much history, who's so strong, who's so badass, but then you see the beginnings of where that comes from. I thought a lot about where it came from. Um, you know, career, New York policeman, moved up to detective, found his way into Harlem, moved up to Misty, and, and you know, they, the two of them been together a long time, and know each other uh, 100% in and out, and they got each other's back, I think they love each other, a great deal of respect and regard, uh, and there's that bond that, unless you're really a policeman on the force, you can't really imagine what that what that bond is like, the, the amount of trust has to be there, the amount of just knowing where the other person is at all times, and, and, and so, you know, I thought a lot about that, and, and, you know, I think he's a guy with a lot of trouble in his past, you know, a lot of personal demons, a lot of, um, you know, maybe, maybe some trouble with booze along the way, um, some family issues, divorce, all those things, you know, he's not, he's not a simple kind of guy, he's a very complicated guy, and um, like I say, a great looking man, and that goes with a complicated man, a great looking man, and scarf, yes. Damn no one understands him, but his woman, <laughs> and that, you can quote me on that. <laughs> I brought the house down. I brought the house down. And tomorrow. we did it. Between Scarf and I and Luke. You know, uh, it's all great actors that you're surrounded by. And, and they're all willing to play and they're happy to be there. And nobody's just taking this lightly. So we would have a lot of fun just exploring what wasn't on the page and just asking questions. And we had a lot of great directors who were interested in pulling out different things that weren't necessarily written. Um, but you know, Mike is a great person. Like he's a great head of the show. He does not have an ego. He's not, you know, coming in there and saying it has to be like this and you know, let my family do that. Like it was all fun. So it's definitely so chill. Like for a superhero, very very chill. Like you would not. I mean, he's got this big. I really beat everybody up. If I was playing Luke Cage, nobody would be talking to me. <laughs> Everything would be in front of me and nobody would be here. Yeah. So that like, is kind of the way he did it playing Scar. Yes. He's like, do not look me in the eye. Yes. Get out of my trailer. No one's allowed to stand in front of me. It's yes. a strange rule. Out of my sideline. Yes. Cameras. Yes. New shoelaces every hour. That's yeah. don't ask. And green M and M. Yes. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. You were awesome. And the thing about the shoelaces is off the record, please. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell anyone. Thank you. Uh, it's right there to the left. Mahershala Ali and Alfre Woodard. Uh, no, I didn't. Not. <laughs> 
Not from any particular one, but I have uh, been involved in the world of politics since actively since I was 14. So I'm around. I was around local politicians then a lot. I was around you know, state politicians and then national politicians, international politicians. So so I know how they move and breathe. Mariah is a powerful woman, and she's a woman that grew up in a family where you didn't tell girls to be nice and sit down. Mom Mabel was a powerful woman, so, so her fire hasn't been put out. It's been trained in a certain way because she's been sent to good schools. So she understands, okay, power is a mind game. I do run into a bulletproof brother eventually, but but power. So then, obviously, I got to figure out. I need that power on my side, but it is it is a mind game. And so she is. Um, she has she has breeding, but she is a Stokes. She married into the Dillards. She is a Stokes, and so we're a family of, of strivers. Cornell is powerful, but he's using the old method of how black men became successful before avenues were opened up to you. So every American fortune is built on quasi-legal activity, some of it outright illegal. The eight families, ten families that have been at the top since the beginning, none of the stuff they did was, was legal. And so imagine a black family decades back for them to, when, when just our, our presence was illegal, uh, for them to be able to build, you know, an empire or something to sit on or something to pass along, well, it had to be built on some quasi-ambiguity. He's still operating in that same realm. I have been sent off to school. We're cousins. We're very close. But like with all cousins, there's, there's certain ones that get sent to the other room when you really want to talk about the stuff you know, the children and the women shouldn't know about. Sometimes one of the girls might get to say, but but Mariah was sent to the other room and Cornell stayed. And not only that, so he is he has inherited that. It's his job to to maintain the legacy. But we're at a point where the struggle is there's a new way of doing this. Let's get political power, is what she's saying. And he's going, like, no, this is what we know. This is what I know. So he, for me, he is the man of the family, and I love him. He's doing that. But, but you know, as you see, it's the old and the new but butting up against each other. It almost gets into an, an inability to see where you're coming from because of the exposure that Mariah has to to the world of legitimate business and politics and Cottonmouth always kind of living within this silo and, and going about doing business in a way that isn't always legitimate of, of almost not totally getting where she's coming from sometimes and well this is what I know so this is how I'm going to go about doing it you know? and, and how that creates the tension um, but yeah I don't want to talk too much and I screw it up. (laughs) (laughs) 
I learn about myself in every part. Uh, hopefully, um, whether it's someone who the audience views as a villain, because when you look at a villain, in part, a world is created by every writer, creator, director, or whatever. And so when the audience says, oh, that person is the villain, it's because they have someone who is is the the moral voice to bounce to bounce off the actions of the person who's deemed as the villain. So but the but I myself am not looking at the character as a villain. My first job is to advocate for that character to to understand where he's coming from and why he makes the choices he makes. But hopefully I learned from from, from every character. Um, and because I feel like I feel like you get what you're supposed to get in your time and that those characters those characters are meant for you to to add something to your life as much as you're there to lift that person off the page and make them a real human being. You know? Can you talk a little bit about being kind of one of the first female kind of villain slash antiheroes in Marvel? How does that feel? Oh, I I am on the up and up. I'm a, I'm a New York City Council woman. Yes, there is quite a strain of corruption that runs through politics. And a very big safe in a very big room. But uh, but as you know, I. She is, she is not villainous. But, so, but how does it feel being, you know, I'll tell you how it feels being in a, a, a Marvel um, story with Misty Knight. And although she thinks she's something. <laughs> but that does excite me with, with Misty and, and, and them coming off Jessica Jones to Misty, I think I think I think the girls are gonna be very excited and the boys are gonna be excited for a different reason. And some of the girls will be excited for all them reasons too. But it's just you feel something is happening. We, we, we're we're opening a new door. And I think everybody's going to be terrifically excited about it. Between the music, between the stories, between the characters, uh, and the fact that Cheo is such a brilliant writer, and he loved and knows Harlem from its, its inception so much. It's just, it's like the richest, it's the richest thing I've ever stepped into, frankly. And so, and, you know, and this is bulletproof. So, so there's all that, you know, fighting and stuff happening. It's just... So, so it, yeah, it, it is, uh, you know, but that's not, that's Alfred reacting to that. Uh, Mariah, Mariah wants... One of the things that Alfie wants uh, that, that coincides with that is I want Harlem to remain Harlem. I want people to come to Harlem and want to be in Harlem and be a Harlemite. I don't want people coming to Harlem. Now, I just bought in 10 years ago. Well, I didn't even buy in. It was my husband. I, was, I said, uptown. I said, you know. <laughs> but it is what you were saying. It's like a neighborhood. In New York City, 
And it's not just a neighborhood, it's a neighborhood with ancestry. Yes. Cultural ancestry, actual you know, ancestry. It's, it's, it is a place that you come. Like everybody, whenever people go to Africa, like, I feel they come from Denmark. I feel like I'm home. I feel, everybody feels at home in Africa for a reason. And you feel at home in Harlem. And through the years, even when it was, its fortunes were changing, and you might, I'd be scared to be up in Harlem unless I was with somebody, depending on what time of day and where I was, it still was like, well, there's Harlem, I got to go. And so, yeah, and, and that's where you knew you are going to hear the music. It was going to be pure. You're going to have the food. I mean, I can eat it every night, but you're going to have the food. You're going to have, it was going to be, you, you could say hallelujah. You could do everything up there. And if you got in trouble, there was one of the best lawyers up there to help set it straight. So, so all that to say, I just, I love that it's not just set in Harlem. It's set in the state of mind that Harlem has been. And so that when people now come to Harlem, they come for that. The balls in the cottonmouth as well. Gotcha. Uh, a lot of that has to do with jail, honestly. And, and in that, um, he just laid the groundwork for me to be able to show up and, and play off of other wonderful actors I got to work with. And um, I think at a certain point, you can kind of hear it. You can kind of hear when it's not when it's not feeling right. And you, you, I feel frustrated when I feel that. And I need that feeling to go away. <laughs> so I just, I, I, cause it's, it's hard for me to go to sleep at night when I feel like I didn't, I didn't at least, whether it makes a cut or not, I gotta, I gotta walk away feeling like we got it. Like we, we and, 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 and then, we got it within certain parameters, at least, you know, uh, uh, that we got down to that truth. And sometimes it's a physical thing, sometimes it's a, uh, sometimes it is the writing, and like, oh, can we make a little adjustment here? And then, boom, they change that word and it opens up. But, but Cheo did a wonderful job of, of being, of, of, of really parking out his, his, the, the narrative and, and, and his, really working out his arc and setting the trajectory and I could see that I would get, got to rap with him about it from time to time and clue me in on the stuff that was coming so it kind of set me up for what was going on in the moment how, how to help set those things up but Cheo like honestly because you know he, he, was, he, was, he was there or emailing or calling or what have you and, and then working off of these other wonderful <laughs> Into character. I, I don't get into character. Yeah, I was just like, you're telling somebody's story. And I've learned so much. I know who she is because I built her bit by bit. You know, I, I, I start working with dialect. I start at the grocery store as soon as I know what my, per my character is, and I start to toss their their dialect into my conversation every day. Everybody around me is used to the dialect changing. So that by the time I get to set, it's natural to me. And when I get emotional, it doesn't go away. And so, uh, so I'm already there. I work on her sensibility. I know who she is. She's the character's always entirely different from Alfred. None of us have the same fingerprints. Well, our job as an actor is to stand the character up 
And what makes Mariah different when you describe her from any other middle-aged, successful African-American woman, went to, you know, Penn, went to this. Well, you're still talking several thousand people, if not. So what makes her specific? So when it's time, when I, when I put on that thing, I'm not her. When they say action, that's when I, when I let Mariah speak. Oh, wow, that was wonderful. I, you know, I think there's certain things that I just kind of tune in a little bit to when I get to work. Um, from I make I make a playlist for all my characters. So if I'm in my trailer and I'm playing music that is specific to Cottonmouth, um, but as soon as you start putting on that wardrobe and you get in the makeup trailer and you're looking at your sides, like it's all kind of yeah yeah, it's all kind of dropping in and um, they call action and. You kind of know if you're if you're present as letting that character speak or not, and um, if, it, if it feels like you talking, then we got a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Like with a play, you actually put on a character more because you start at the top and you wear it all the way through. But working on camera, it's stop, start, stop, start. If you, you know, I know some actors stay like that, but it's like then then then, then they're not breathing, so it's not flowing. Things have to occur to you. In life, they occur to us. We never know what we're going to say next. And so that's like trusting your instrument and trusting your homework to very done. As soon as they say cut, then you need this action, then it's right there. Ta-da. Where are you writing from? Black girl. And you black girl nerds? Oh, no, I'm typing <laughs> Hyper.com. Hyperbole. <laughs> well, okay. We are so, so excited uh, for people to see this. I mean, it's just like, y'all just have no idea where it's going. It is a new, it is brand, it is brand, brand new. And I think everybody, different ages, different countries, it's, 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 it's a real gift. Because, yeah, it's, it's different from the source material. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it also, that doesn't help you act. So, so, and they even gave us the complete Luke Cage, yeah. But I didn't, I looked at it afterwards because it's a different genre. And so what is required as an actor and to bring something to life, when I would see the images and the words and the kapows, I can't act that and it takes me out of, but what I can do is, he, he was able to translate it into a reality. And so he laid those moments in. So the viewer will understand when that moment happens. That does feel lifted off the page of a comic. But, but, but as an actor, yeah, you get in trouble. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Glory.
yesterday we see the notorious C-A-G-E One-fourth of the defenders' amazing team No pretenders when it comes to get they streets clean The rest clones marvel, bringing the best tones Others can't compete, so they crept home Got a solid frame like Cage's flesh bones And they'll hold you down like it's Chick Jess Jones Sweet Christmas will be off the hinge a little early I'll be ready to binge on September 30 And watch Luke Cage, a solid empowered man Box out and devour promise powered man At first he wanted to stay low-key That round the way chill Harlem homie Now if you fit the pricey desire You can get this hero for hire Spirit uncorruptible, skin indestructible You best hide and duck if he come for you Netflix bangers will blow they brains Enter the chamber, Wu-Tang Cage Chael gon' fuse a surprise all day with Alicia Heat's music A tribe called Cage This Cage thought would premiere to rise always 9.30 Cage over gon' get all praise Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadman. Various segments on all podcast episodes are edited by Mr. Daniel and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our podcast is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals used throughout podcast episodes are created by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find our shows on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, and Stitcher. That was a HeadGum podcast.